Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, but perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Welcome to Podcasts Like It's 1999. Uh, I'm your host, Filiskov. And for our final episode of West Wing Wednesdays, uh, we're going to do a little bit of a two-parter. We did these for uh, previous miniseries as well, but this is the only one for for this one. Um, so we're starting with uh, an interview. Well, I guess an interview is not the right word. A conversation with Liz Hanna about the season one finale, um, which is 
I mean, she's an unbelievable guest. It's a fantastic episode. It's I, I couldn't have asked for a better guest for our uh, series finale. Um, and then I have an interview, an actual interview with Paul Redford, who was a writer producer on The West Wing. So I got to kind of pick his brain and and quite frankly nerd out with him about uh, The West Wing and his many years on the show and his many episodes on the show and what it was like being in that writer's room and what it was like producing that show. Uh, and a little bit about the newsroom as well. But um, it was just an absolute blast. So I hope that you guys will stick around uh, after this segment with Liz Hanna to listen to uh, me interview Paul Redford. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phil Iscope, And with me today, back to talk about the season one finale is Liz Hanna. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Liz. Thanks for having me. Super stoked. Um, very, very excited to talk about this finale with you, which quite frankly, I had not watched again in a while. Mm. So it was, uh, it was, uh, kind of emotional in a weird way. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that, but I, uh, I, I kind of want to talk about, well, first of all, the title of this episode is called what kind of day has it been? Uh, which is the title of the first season finale of Sports Night, the series finale of Studio 60, and the first season also finale first season of... Seven. <laughs> first and only season of first Studio 60. Uh, and the first season of Newsroom. Uh, I, I I kind of... I gotta wonder, like, why this works for him so well. Like, it's fine. It's a good title, I guess. But, like, I don't really get it. I read, uh, while I was doing my research, mm. I read a... Um, a Wikipedia thing that was uh-huh. uh, he got that from a West Wing, you know, a West Wing producer or a sports site producer who would say that at the end of rehearsal days. So it obviously signal. I mean, it's so funny because like sure. it's such a sarcasm. Like <laughs> I, I feel like I know that phrase so well. Yeah. And if I, every now and then you'll like see it in a show or somebody will say it, and you're like, it's like a little Easter egg for everybody who's ever watched any of sure. Sorkin's shows. Sure. Um, but I also am sort of like, it's kind of just like, what's up? It's like a more eloquent way of just like asking how you are. So it's sort of yeah. interesting that it's taken on this like monumental weight, yeah. even though it's it really is not. sort of just like a, okay. Yeah. That's sort <laughs> of like, what kind of day has it been? I don't know. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I also, wait, a, I just wanted, yeah, please, please, I please, also yeah. think, I also wanted, I think like the one that's for, um, Studio 60 is like a four-parter. It's like, what yes. kind of day has it been? Like part one, part two. It really, it's drawn out in that <laughs> one. That one, you really get time to think about it. Well, so this is actually a, a good time to ask you how you feel about the titles of episodes of television. Do you, is it something that you believe in? I, you've obviously worked on a couple of shows. Did, like, did, did, uh, did Mindhunter have episode titles? I don't think we did. Uh, we right. definitely didn't in writing and producing it. Like, I don't, I don't think we did. I think it's right. just like episode one, two, three, four, and sure. five, I, et cetera. I've never referred to any of the episodes by title name. So um, that's maybe just my bad. But um, uh, well, like I, you're you working know, on a show right now. Do you have episode titles on, on this show? We don't, we don't have episode titles right now. Um, I, you know, I, it's, I think it's like if they're significant or they feel necessary that I'm all down for it. I, we probably will on this show have mm-hmm. episode titles as we get down to it. Um, but I also like, I'm just sort of inherently bad at titles in general. So like, <laughs> I, I just don't, they like make me very nervous. And I think particularly in television until something is produced, 
Because it's sort of like a logline for the episode yep. that that it feels like you're putting a mark on it of what it's going to be before you even get to what it's what it could be. Sure. So I sort of I tend to go like in post after watching it. It's like you've had the baby and now you name it. Then like rather than naming it before you have it. So like that's kind of where I am. But a, a show that I worked on that's that is also shooting right now. We had certain episodes had title names because they were sort of significant. Sure. names for those episodes and they were the ones that had titles i think were kind of bottle episodes that were fairly significant but um yeah i'm kind of like but i'm also like if they're good great you know <laughs> like if you can do a yeah. great job with them do it i just am not <laughs> like somebody recently it's... asked me like title suggestions for a movie the other day and i was like dude my i named a movie the post like it's <laughs> and like, Longshot obviously had its title uh, issues and, too. And, so I mean, I, yeah, and Longshot was like a sundry of options before there. So and all the right places was the name of the book. So I definitely should not be somebody who's like you're coming. To it is that. interesting because I do feel like um, I might have said this on a previous episode, but John Wells believes that there are two things that shouldn't be discussed in a writer's room: character names and titles of episodes, because uh, you'll just waste a whole bunch of time talking about stuff that just doesn't ultimately matter that much. So yeah. I totally get it, but I also imagine that you know you also, as a writer. Um, there's something about titling it. There's something about kind of putting that stamp on it that feels your own. So it can weirdly feel possessive. So I, I, I know sort of where you're getting at. I definitely think like with the wackier episodes of television I've ever written, it can be very helpful in getting sure. people to understand sort of like the tone of it. If mm -hmm. you're kind of giving it a referential name or something like that, people are like, oh, okay, this is what I'm going. Again, it's kind of a log line for an episode. So yes. if yes. you want people to go in with an anticipation of what it's going to be on the read, then it's helpful. If not, then I tend to just be like episode two. Yeah, I mean, it's it, 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 specifically with this show, it is interesting. I mean, they make a, a big deal out of it. I mean, ER did the same thing a few years earlier, but like they, they literally give it a title mm -hmm. card. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it feels like it has meaning and sometimes it feels like it's just sort of a placeholdery thing that just kind of, you know, the Portland trip or the whatever. Right. Um, but then sometimes you'll get like a celestial navigation, which again is a great episode. It's a funny episode. I couldn't tell you what celestial navigation really thematically has to do with the episode itself, but mm -hmm. it's a funny joke. And I guess he just felt like underlining it. It's just interesting the, the, why he titles things, certain things. Well, and then you get to like the, like if you look at friends and it's always just like the one that, one and that feels sort of like more memorable to me in ways. Cause yes. I, it's every single time I'm like, Oh, that's the episode where that happens. And then I can sort of piece it back together in my head. Yeah. Celestial navigation. I have to be like, what was what? that one about? No, yeah. 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 Even, you know, what's funny is even I forgot that this season finale was called what kind of day has it been. I thought it was part one. And then mm -hmm. part two was mm -hmm. season two. I forgot that it was split up. Um, or like, you know, or actually yeah. not split up. Um, so that was funny while I was looking at it. And it actually feels of the, well, I guess that's not true. I guess <laughs> what kind of day has it been? Is this episode in 24 hours though? It's, it is. It is. It is. It's one day. Yeah. yeah. And newsroom season finale is also one day. And or series, and then history, yeah. series. Oh, so that makes sense. That's interesting. It is. I hadn't really. So this is this is. I I have a question for you, and it's it's a grander question in terms of. So you know, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this. So this episode uh, uses a device that Sorkin uses a fair amount, um, and that a lot of writers use quite often. And we're seeing 
a fair amount in pilots of late, which is the sort of in media res fractured narrative of jumping to a juicier quote unquote part of, of a story, rewinding and then figuring out how you got there. Um, what are your thoughts on this device, Liz? Cause it's divisive. It is. Um, you know, I think if an episode or a pilot or whatever has been initially broken that way, and is sort of authentically created with this bookend, then that's the prerogative of the creator and that's how they wanted to do it and whatever. I think what we're seeing a lot lately is looking down on an audience like they're not going to get it. And so it's like, hang on, wait through the really boring, talky stuff. We're going to get to the exciting part. And so they show the like exciting part at the top. Um, And that, at least what I've noticed or like, what it seems like is that feels like it's come a lot in post and it's like the episode isn't playing well and you do that. This episode actually feels like it was created that way yeah. and, and maybe it wasn't, but it does feel authentic to how it was broken because it is super like out of the blue. And I think you want the tension of like, oh my God, what's going to happen to really push you through that episode. I, the other thing is I think we've been seeing it a lot like as bookends to series rather yes. than like this is an episodic conceit. Um, and that's when I start to get a little like, eh, you know. No, I, I mean, it's, it's, it feels like, and I, I do understand, especially with, you know, your murder mysteries and what have you, which do mm-hmm. tend to do this relatively often, um, where it is, you know, there's a body drop and they kind of want to rewind to show you how we got there and piece it together, whatever. It doesn't bother me as much as it bothers, say, Alan Seppenwall, for instance, where mm-hmm. it's just there are people or critics that I imagine are watching so much television that mm-hmm. they're inundated with this device that it can feel tropey and annoying. And it is, I mean, you've been through development, obviously. Sometimes studios will be like, wouldn't it be great if we could just kind of really get people hooked on a moment and then figure mm-hmm. out a way to get there? I do get Get it, but to your point, if it's organic and it feels like it's been built from that, it I don't know, it doesn't bump me as much. Yeah, I think it's like it's it's interesting because I'm dealing with a little bit of something of that version on the sure. show I'm doing right now, and it really I think for us came very authentically, and it, hopefully, whenever anybody sees the television show, it'll make sense as to why it happens this sure. way. Um, but I I think. It's when it feels like going to what you're saying, it's when it feels like we have to grab the audience because they're not going to pay attention if we don't. That's when I, like, I, I sort of am allergic to anything that treats the audience any dumber than the people who are <laughs> making the television show. Sure. Like, sure. I just don't, I, I'm like, we all work in this industry. Like, it's not like any of us are smarter than the average television movie watcher. So to treat them any dumber than any of us feels insulting. And, and that's kind of, I think where it comes from is like this nervousness that, oh, they're not going to follow what happens. It's like, first of all, and I'm just going to tell them just talking 47 minutes long. It's not like they have to wait 12 (laughs) years to figure out what happened. Like we're not asking a lot. And second of all, like, I think there is an interest in an intrigue. Again, I think in this episode, it really works. It feels very organic. And it also is not, um, the whole thing isn't the conceit of like a drama. It's the, Mm -hmm. you sort of. It's the pilot sing- the, the, the sim- signal. signal. It's like Charlie talking to the president. There's a few things in there that you're kind of like, oh, I wonder where this all started. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, kind of how are you going to end? No, I, I agree. I, I mean, I, I think that also um, 
you know, Sorkin is such a theatrical writer and it does, you know, playing with time and the things that you do on the stage, I imagine, because there's a limitation to writing a play. It feels like this is something that speaks to his past and and the the writing style that he's accustomed to, which makes complete sense to me. Um, I'm going to give a brief synopsis for the people that haven't uh, watched the episode. President Bartlett prepares for a town hall meeting with college students while the U.S. military Races to find a downed American pilot in the Iraqi desert before the Iraqi military captures him. CJ doesn't relish the notion of misleading the press over rescue preparations. Likewise, Toby tries to ignore updates from the distressed orbiting space shuttle, which includes his brother, a payload specialist aboard the craft, which cannot close its cargo doors. Meanwhile, a huffing Josh is dispatched to run down and convince the wayward vice president to rethink his position on campaign finance reform. Um, what kind I of day issue has- with? I can't take issue with huffing. Bradley Whitford was incredible shape running that. <laughs> I, I agree. Like, I agree 100%. I, 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 let's not add that adjective. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I agree. Uh, what kind of day has it been aired on May 17th, 2000? It was written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Tommy Shlami. 13.30 million viewers tuned into the episode. 25 million viewers tuned into the second season premiere. Um, which, which brings me to two, two questions, too. The first is... This episode got a fair amount of flack for its cliffhanger at the time, um, in, which kind of surprised me. In hindsight, it's just a really good cliffhanger that people like. Yeah. At the time, people were like, oh, going to the assassination trope after, at the end of season one, like whatever. And I mean, first of all, it I worked. like that there's an assassination trope. Like that's a thing. <laughs> I mean, people were saying that. I'm like, okay. That's so weird. But it also worked. 25 million people tuned into the premiere of the next season. So, like, I mean, it it did what it was supposed to do. But what do you feel like cliffhangers are tropes? I mean, it feels like that's a staple of television. Um, I think if they're done well, they're not. And I think it really depends on the type of show. I think something to what the audience was bristling. Look, I didn't watch this in real time, so I didn't interact with Mm -hmm. with the cliffhanger or the, like, you know, God forbid, three months until it premieres. And yeah. like, it's like now we have to wait two years in between yeah, seasons. Exactly. So let's calm down. Yeah. Um, I I feel like this is not a show that anybody anticipated a cliffhanger from. Like the context, content of this cliffhanger mm-hmm. is wildly more dramatic and um, like action heavy than anything else in the preceding 22 episodes. So I think it was, it's like sort of a shock and then, Oh my God, what's going to happen. And I don't think anybody really, at least in my opinion, when I watched this is like, I actually didn't think I was like, you're not going to kill anybody on this show, which like spoiler alert, they didn't, but like, you know, I don't like, so it was a little different. I guess in my watching, but again, I watched it, you know, five, six, seven years later. So I knew I was like, well, this went on for six seasons. So I think we're good. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I think cliffhangers really depend for me. There's certain, certain ones that work better than others. um, And I definitely think they can be overused. So, Mm -hmm. but there's like, you know, the season two finale of West Wing is kind of a cliffhanger, but like if you've been watching, you know what's going to happen. So it's sort of interesting, um, but I also think the season two premiere is so phenomenal that to have changed so anything would have would have been outside of it. I actually thought you were going to say that there was a bad reaction because of the violence, and this is coming. No, no. you know this, is, which is I guess <laughs> shocker. Nobody had that problem. Yeah, I feel like it's <laughs> assassination trope is like so, is like a phrase I've never heard before. So it's like still sort of like hmm, I don't know that that's like. 
something a trope, that's but sure. a trope, yeah. but sure. Well, I mean, within political shows, it's a trope. Yeah, I think is what they were getting at, and I mean, subs and, and certainly subsequent. Uh, you know, anything that revolves around a president, I mean, sure. kind of the cool. worst thing you can do is an assassination yeah. attempt of some sort. Yes. I do think it's interesting that um, Sorkin and, and a lot of the writer, uh, sorry, a lot of the actors were asked about this at the time, because I guess there was a fair amount, obviously there was a fair amount of press on who's going to live, who's going to die. But it like really was never built that way. It was always no. built towards sort of a story engine idea. And really Sorkin, who, as, as you very well know, doesn't plan anything ahead. So it was interesting that this was planned ahead. Like he knew he wanted this assassination attempt because he knew that the premiere was going to do what he did, which was rewind and, and fill us in on how the team got together. So like yeah. there was an element of thought being brought into these three episodes of television and how they would interact with one another, which is again, why it's like, give the guy a little bit of credit. Like he's not doing it for hacky reasons. He's doing it because he wants do it for good reasons right i also think it's interesting sort of looking at it in the long run which is like first of all i can't i still i think we talked about this last time i Mm. still can't believe that shows are made because they're 22 (laughs) 23 episodes long like i'm making an eight episode television show right now and i'm just like maybe it's seven i'm like guys how do we feel i don't know um but like it's it's and this is not one of those seasons of television that you rewatch and you're like mm, there's some real stinkers yeah. in there that you're like God I wish it was sort of the twelve eighteen you know even if you bring it down a little bit this is a tight first season that is really like it takes a lot to criticize I mean there are some episodes in there that you're like aren't as good yeah. but it takes a lot to really criticize. And Sorkin has talked about this before that he like sort of didn't know how to really make a full yeah. t- show before and like blew it all on season one. And then season, halfway through season two was like, I have no idea what to do. <laughs> so I think it's like even more remarkable kind of where season two goes of, mm-hmm. of how, of how well it's set up. Um, but the other thing I was going to say is that like this show is never the, the thing about this episode and the ramifications of it throughout the series are interesting to me in sort of timeline because so much of what this is about is trauma and and trauma that will continue and sort of obviously with Josh's character continues on for you know years because it gets brought up again like in season four or something like that and then you know obviously with the president and the dog and Zoe and all of this it's brought up a number of times what's interesting to me is sort of the parallels and we talked about this a little bit last time politically but the parallels of trauma because 9-11 is about to happen in the middle of season two and how they sort of preceded a national tragedy with their own as, and then dealt with our national tragedy, obviously in Isaac and Ishmael, but then sort of we all kind of, their characters were already dealing with trauma. So it sort of worked like they didn't have to do nine 11. They kind of were running parallel. So it's just sort of interesting. Like you kind of see this in the zeitgeist sometimes where you just don't real, I mean, Handmaid's Tale is a really good example where they made that, long before Trump. The book obviously was written decades and decades yeah. before the situation we were in, but they were already making the show. And you sort of look at it like, would this show have been as poignant yeah. and as specific as it was in 2016 dealing with what we were dealing with? Yeah. Um, so it's just sort of interesting to see how those ebbs and flows happen. No, absolutely. I, I think it's also, you know, you, you bring up um, how prescient this show is, too. I mean, it's crazy to think about, you know, you have the, the Supreme Court justice situation where Sam is talking about privacy and how mm-hmm. that's going to be the thing that, you know, that defines the next you know two decades. 
which he completely guessed. You've got yeah. a whole episode where um, where they don't want to, it's the Joey Lucas thing, where they don't want to fund her candidate because they'd rather have a crazy right-wing candidate who's like saying all sorts of nonsense um, because it helps them. And you're just like, Ugh. like, and, and then campaign finance reform. Like, oh. it's all this stuff where you're like, how are we doing on that stuff, guys? Well, I mean, my favorite thing is like the American president, the two things they're talking about are gun control and uh, the environment. Change. It's like, oh, cool. <laughs> things have really changed. Like, it's it's actually mind-boggling when you watch the end, like, that there's a crazy Republican who also in, like, now looks totally sane. Moderate. And, and completely moderate. <laughs> Um, but like who is, you know, do it. It's that movie to me is like, every time I watch it, I'm just like, are we not showing this in schools? And like, we're super dumb that this is 30 years ago. This is what we're talking about. 25 years ago. It's crazy. It's funny. I just wanted to touch about the, yeah, please. It's interesting how prescient it is and it doesn't try and be prescient. Like I think, um, similar with the American president. And I, I think it's not attempting to, be ahead of the curve. It's sort of just, it's dramatically doing what the characters in the show require of it, which just tends to happen to, and is I think being authentic to politics, which unfortunately politics are very cyclical. It's interesting because one of my biggest critiques of the newsroom season one was that they did it before nine 11. So they could do the nine 11 episode. And Sorkin has spoken about like the fact that they didn't do it in, in the West wing and they, and that like he really wanted to do it. And, and obviously it's Osama bin Laden being, caught and murdered or executed um so it's you know four four years later but um it's really like it was so as a new yorker i found that episode so jarring because i was like i mean not that you have to be a new yorker to do that but like it was so for me it's just like oh now this is all i'm thinking about like i'm thinking about the fact that you're not real and i'm thinking about the fact that you set up this entire conceit just to be this way and it was really i felt like a detriment to the show because Once he let that go, that show got really good. Like season two is great. Mm -hmm. Like it starts to really like once it separates itself from reality, starts to get much more interestingly timely and having conversations that feel like broader conversations that Sorkin is good about good at having Mm -hmm. male, female gender dynamics in the workplace. Um, You know, how the news actually represents itself and is apolitical or not. Like it, it's interesting to me that actually pinpointing specific real things that you think will make more timely don't. They do the opposite. I totally agree. I think season two also benefits from, ironically, what we were talking about earlier, which is uh, splitting the timelines. Um, yes. It creates a tension in in sort of a temporal tension, which I think makes sense too. It's you know I I agree. I you know I was talking to to one of the guests about um, how much I want Aaron Sorkin to write something fictional again. Um, it feels as though he's now sort of just shackled himself to real people, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I don't I don't dislike the work that he's that his his output. It's just I I miss him fictionalizing things. I miss him playing in, in sort of a fictional sandbox. And, and I think that, um, you know, his, his prescience to your point is, I I don't actually think that Aaron Sorkin's a particularly far left person. I actually think he's a pretty quintessential boomer in the sense that he's probably started pretty far left in the sixties and has matriculated uh, center Mm -hmm. since then. Um, But, but I do think that, 
it's I don't know that it was even that hard to guess these things were going to be issues to some degree. Oh, it's yeah. just we all just ignored it. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, he had so many great consultants on this show that yeah. can yeah. talk about sort of what are going to be the future issues or what are the issues sure. now that we're talking about behind the scenes to make issues in 10 years. And mm-hmm. I think, like, that... I know that Rahm Emanuel was one of the consultants on the show, which is interesting mm-hmm. of how how he knew about Obama and how he knew about sort of like where the Democrats were going to be focused on. And that's one of the reasons Santos became a character, which was Mm -hmm. obviously John Wells, but had kind of been plotted out early. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's interesting to me that like those things, which, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's interesting. I do both. I do true stories and I do fictional. It's really different. Doing true stories is really hard. Doing fictional stories is really hard. I don't want to say one is harder than the other. (laughs) Although with one, you have to talk to like way less lawyers. So I guess it's slightly (laughs) less phone calls. Um, I mean, it's always better to not talk to lawyers. I mean, let's be real. You know, I, I, it's, they're lovely. I, I, I cannot complain. (laughs) They're trying to make it so I'm not sued. um, This is true. This is true. It's, it's really, it's, it's really interesting. I think the true stories that we tell, I I think that is, I guess, more, um, and I'm not saying that I've told necessarily the right Mm -hmm. ones, I think, but I think it is when you're looking at prescience and timeliness and, um, the zeitgeist is like, what is it that we're looking at right now that is a true story that feels like we should? I mean, the post, for instance, right. similar to Handmaids, was bought mm-hmm. and you know in development before Trump was elected, yep. before a number of the things that made it timely happened. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of the fact that it was just about a, a you know a woman sort of struggling with power and identity, which is always timely. You know, the ideas of um, freedom of speech and freedom of the press and and the power of the government, like those things obviously became slightly more of the topic in 2017. But wouldn't you say that aiming to be timely doesn't always work? I mean, I would argue that I Chicago think- 7 is a movie that is fine. I, I did. I didn't. I certainly didn't dislike it. Um, I'm not sure that I loved it. And I think part of it had to do with the fact that what we were living in, that this movie was trying perhaps too hard to make a statement about the, the time that we're living in. I definitely think aiming to be timely is a really quick way to shoot yourself in the foot. I yes. think it's more like, it's almost like going against the grain for me of, of like, you know, what is the thing that I want to talk about right now that feels timely for me or it feels, ti- mm-hmm. or feels not even timely, feels like important for me. Is there a story that also fulfills that, be it true or not true? Mm-hmm. And then kind of, again, like banking on the fact that somebody else is going to want to watch that and talk about it. That's really the only thing that I feel like I can do because just if you're ever, if you're a creator and you're chasing what is timely, by the time you make it, it's not going to be, you know, like it's talk about what I think is really also interesting about the show is like you watch the news cycle go from 24 hours to like five minutes by the final season, which is obviously what we live in now. And I mean, that's what filmmaking and storytelling is. It's like, if you try to tell something within, you know, it's yeah i just don't think there and then there's other things that like i I think it's too soon you know everybody's been trying to make a hillary movie or a hillary show for years and i'm like i still have so much ptsd i don't know if i like have the ability to we're not far enough away to look at that for me but if there are other stories that feel like a way to talk about that that i'm interested you know it's interesting that you say that because i've been thinking a lot about um how the pandemic is going to be 
sort of, uh, I don't even know, movies, television, things that are going to be based on that. And it's interesting because when we were in it, I thought that Mythic Quest did a tremendous uh, pandemic episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that there's something, because it's, it's not overtly political, like it sort of became well, politicalized, but you know sort of what yeah. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like that, that, that there's something very sort of, um, there's something overtly emotional about this medical thing. And, and it does kind of get to our core a little bit in a different way. You know, obviously, you know, 500,000 Americans, over 500,000 Americans have died from this. Millions have died globally. Um, it's a thing that's going to be a cloud over us forever for all intents and purposes. So to not comment on it or not make films or television shows about it, I think is a little bit of a fool's errand. But I would also say too, that like, how do you wrap your arms around that? How do you do this? These are all sort of things that we still have yet to, and I, I would argue maybe we should never make the good 9-11 movie. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know that, that it's, that it feels like a thing that we need to do. I mean, I think United, uh, United 13, is that what it is? Or, uh, 93. 93, sorry. United, I um, I got, I got one of the numbers. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think that's a very good movie. Um, mm-hmm. I would argue the 25th hour might be the best 9-11 movie. But, but my point here is that like, it's just, there's certain subject matter that's really hard to do. And somehow this show finds a way to navigate and, and sort of unpack really difficult issues in a mm-hmm. very effective way. I mean, I think this episode with the campaign finance reform thing um, is effective. I mean, I, I don't know how you feel about that storyline in this episode, but I mean... I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think going to what you're saying is you also don't know when things will come back around. Like we were talking about last time that during the election, like everybody was watching the West Wing, you know, it was sort of like the last kind of year, I would say people, a lot of people have been discovering the West Wing for the first time in my writer's room. A lot of people had watched it for the first time, which I was also like, how did you make it in here? What happened? How do we not talk about this? I'm just kidding. Um, but they, they watched it by the, they were watching it by the time we were out of the world. Um, but I, I, but I think there's like sort of certain things like that where you're watching it and it kind of becomes important on the nine 11 front. I don't disagree. I think it's, you know, I think 25th hour is a great example of something that feels sort of about it, but not about it. Yeah. There's a really amazing book that I would recommend, which is slightly off topic, but just because we're talking mm-hmm. about 9-11, it's called The sure. Only Plane in the Sky. It was based, um, it's written by this um, journalist named Garrett Graff. He wrote an article that I actually adapted years ago called Grow the Only Plane in the Sky, which was an oral history of Air Force One on 9-11. Oh, wow. So it was, it was interviewed everybody except W, um, who was on the plane, and then a few people who were in D.C. and sort of everywhere that, that Air Force One went. The book is an expansion of that and looks at sort of like, I don't know, it's sort of like 20 or 25 places in America. And it's an oral history of that day through the eyes of just Americans who were on the front line of 9-11, Americans who were just at home watching it on TV. It's, I think, sort of like the most powerful um, retrospect at at 9-11 that I would recommend. And that for me feels almost like what what you could do. I don't know how you would, because... It's so um, hard to have anybody's similar experience and, and how to adapt it into a way that's going to feel new or feel like important enough to say um, that it, it's, it's, 
it, yeah, I don't know. It's, I think 24th hour is really interesting because it's really, it's not about it, but it is. Right. And there's like, a, there's an yeah. emotion that feels very important in that. Well, it's like, I mean, if you, if you look at sort of the two most overt 9-11, I mean, you've got extremely loud and incredibly close and you have uh, a World, World Trade, Trade Center. Center. And and both of those are are attempting to really just like go straight at the nerve and right mm-hmm. at the emotion of it, and that is, I mean, very tricky to do, right? I mean, it, it, it can come across as treacly, it can come across as all that kind of stuff, um, and I think that both those films kind of step on those landmines in in their own ways. I think that this, the only plane in the sky, and I, obviously, I'm sure, I'm sure your script was great, and I, I it's a shame that it, it wasn't made because no, it's it totally does fine. Seem, I wasn't bringing it up. No, 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 no. I wasn't. I, yeah. I, I wasn't suggesting that that's that but you. But also, I, you I'm, can say I'm great. But also, <laughs> I'm just saying. My my point is that I think what's interesting about that, and I do remember that article. I have, I, I'm sure I have it flagged somewhere, and I fully intended to read it. But I do think that it's a vantage point on a yeah. thing that allows you to get at it without going straight at it. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. like I think that totally. it, it's, um, and it does sound like a fascinating perspective of this horrific thing. Well, and speaking of, and going sort of circling yeah. back to yeah, yeah, yeah. this episode. Yeah. is that I do think this is one of the things that Sorkin has always done well, is you feel like you're understanding the um, importance of whatever political machinations are going on, but mm-hmm. you don't feel either bored by it or sucked into it enough that you're like, mm-hmm. I got to go read 15 things about campaign, campaign finance. Mm-hmm. So like, I think what's interesting about the campaign finance reform arc of this episode is it's really setting up the season it's setting up the premiere of season two which you're not going to really sort of grasp until you're in it and then it's setting up the whole problem with the vice president that's coming sort of like for a season and a half like it's going for it goes for a long time and which i also think his character gets like kind of shaft like i really think his character was really underutilized which Look, it's an ensemble of like 17 people. So some person's going to get underutilized. But he um, they become sort of like more and more empathetic as the series goes on with the alcoholism. And then you find out that he had like too much beer in college. And he, then that's why he stops drinking, <laughs> which is sort of like they set it up to make you think he's like some horrific, yeah. you know, like fall down drunk while he was a politician. And oh, my God, this is going to be a big scandal. And it was like, I drank in college. And you're like, well, so did we. Um, but I think, you know, like, yeah. and this is not, this is saying like yeah, yeah. I have the utmost respect for, for people who are able to identify their alcoholism and speak to it and particularly in a preemptive way, which is so interesting to me about this character is that he's like, so kind of white hat that it's really interesting. Yeah. Hoynes is, uh, becomes a, a little bit of like a, a straw man for them mm-hmm. in a lot of ways as in, in the writer's room where they kind of, they, they bend him into the directions that they need him. Mm-hmm. Um, to, and, 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 which is a shame, but I think it's a testament to Matheson's performance that it all kind of feels relatively consistent. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of the CJ Hoynes reveal. I, I, that that sucks, in my opinion. Um, I, I, I don't love that, like, they bring Hoynes back for, for yeah. season seven as, like, a nut. It's, it's, there's just stuff that, that is unfortunate to your point, which is that he does they do really good stuff with him in season one and two and even in three a little bit, but then four, they need to get him off the, off the board. Well, they need to get so rid of they him can, so they can, right? yeah. <laughs> So it's just like, it's stuff where you're just like, okay, but it, it, it is a little bit of a bummer. I, 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 I want to talk about the Toby storyline in this episode, because I think it actually kind of in a, in a weird way taps into 
a little bit of the 9-11 stuff that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. This idea of, of a person within, a person of power in an incredibly powerful situation whose hands are tied and there's nothing he can do. He's just mm-hmm. sitting there watching, hoping that everything plays itself out just fine up on the space shuttle and the issues that they're having. Um, and the, the sort of the guilt that Toby feels because he forgot that his brother was even up there and the embarrassment that comes with that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a really, it's a really good Toby storyline, which they then unfortunately used not great in season seven, but. I was going to um, say, it comes back in not a great way. It's but, I, really, but here I mean, it's that's great. Sort of, oof, it's, that's sort of one of the things that I feel like in some television series, we've kind of just been like, oh, that didn't happen. You know, you're just like, that's fine. Yeah. We didn't do that. And yeah. that's, that's the one for me. I actually am like, you know, there's certain things where I'm like, ah, eh, that's not my favorite, but. I'm pretty okay with what happens with everyone throughout the course of the series. That's the one that's a real bummer for me. Cause it's just the antithesis of Toby, you know, like I just, yeah, it's a real bummer. I just, oh, it makes me sad. Yeah. It's, it's a, it, it is uh, so much so that I don't know if you know that Sorkin reached out to him to say how much he was sorry about what they did to Toby. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, I know that I mean, he's, yeah. Yeah. I, I no, was no, going to say, yeah, I was going to say, I know that Richard Schiff has spoken out about it before and said that like, that was really disappointing for him that that had happened to his character. And I get it. Cause it is kind of, it goes back to, I think we talked about this last time, but what this season does. And then I think particularly in season three, is it, or is it season two? It's when everybody finds out about the diagnosis and it's in two and Toby is really, really angry. And Toby is like, this is impeachment worthy, you know, like you should step down. Like he is the most gung ho um, and like personally offended in some way. That seed has been laid since season, like episode two of season one. Like they started this father son relationship between Bartlett and Toby very early. That was about respect and trust. And then sort of like peaked in season two and then they got back together. And then, so when seven to sort of negate all of that was just so, so heartbreaking to me, it was like, you made it through so much. <laughs> yeah, no, there's there is something. I mean, it's one of the you know great lines in Seventeen People is when Bartlett's like, "Are you upset that I lied to you? Or are you upset that you're the seventeenth yeah. one to find out?" Like, yeah. is it? There, there's just a lot of great stuff in that relationship, um, and and you do get the impression that it's like they kind of dotted they kind of ended everybody in a relatively good place at the end of the series. I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't think they knew what to do with Toby. Like, I just think that they were just sort of like, what do we do with this guy? And yeah. I guess they felt like this was as good a, a way to wrap it up as any. But this episode in particular, even the scene with Bartlett and Toby in this episode, where Bartlett goes to him and says, like, it's going to be fine. You know, it's all going to yeah. be. And he just tries Hi, to kind brother. of. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and he just tries to comfort him. And, and Toby pushing back on that and being like... Mm-hmm listen, I, I appreciate that you think you know this, but like, we don't know this and we don't know what's going to happen. And, yeah. and it's, it's kind of a, I think, a he humility. Says outer, yeah. I think he says it's outer space, which is one of my yeah. favorite, like it's such a Tobyism, but it's also just like, <laughs> my man, it's outer space. Like at this point, we've all seen gravity. We know what can go wrong. Yeah. They've yeah. seen Apollo 13 and experienced they know. it. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. they fucking know what yeah. could go wrong. It's, um, which brings me to, we're going to talk again about yeah. our favorite. No, we'll talk about it later because we're going to talk about cliffhangers. Yes, about yes, yes, one yes, of my yes. favorite recent shows that deals with space. Can't wait. Oh, just a little spot in my heart forever. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think 
It's interesting because the Toby and Bartlett relationship doesn't get spoken about a lot because Josh became such the main character of the show and particularly in the beginning of season two, developing the Bartlett-Josh relationship was like the, really felt like the priority of Mm -hmm. those first two episodes. Um, Even though, you know, like Adam Arkin comes back post the Toby-Bartlett fallout in season two and all of that. So it does feel, but it's really interesting because it's kind of, it's almost like My Three Sons. It's like constructing (laughs) this, you know, like here's Bartlett and then he's got Toby and Josh and Sam to some extent, but it's, it's like Sam and CJ. And then CJ sort of takes the place of Sam in some ways. Um, Sorry, Zoe, you are not included in my three sons of of this story, but I think it's really interesting. I think the other thing about this episode that I find so remarkable is how many storylines are happening that are feel like a storylines that are really important and really setting things up and adding to conflict. We haven't even talked about, you know, the, the uh, pilot who's shot down and the rescue mission, which is a whole thing for every character is involved in that. Um, Leading to one of my favorite CJ monologues of all time to Danny was like, yeah, okay. I'm scared of you now. You seem real, which again, this being a season finale you do want to feel like you've watched the pilot and you can watch the season finale and be like, these are the same characters, but they feel different. You know, this feels like this year has changed. CJ feels the most significantly different to me Mm -hmm. in that she was getting her feet under her. And I think what's great is sort of seeing that in the first two episodes of season two is like really how out of water she was. She just had no idea. And by the end of this, she's the press secretary and she's like, Danny, love you, but back off. Like, I'm, I don't serve you and I'm going to lie to you if it's going to save lives. It's, I mean, and, and obviously the, the, the press conference she gives where she talks about, um, you know, gun laws and, and the idea that like, oh, if, if ever, so you know, need I remind you that the president was shot tonight surrounded by some of the best. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's a really, um, it is an amazing episode in the sense of how deftly it balances all of these things. It never feels um, weighted down by any of it. Like it, it knows where the jokes need to be. There's a, you know, there is a classic West Wing runner of Josh not having a chair, um, you know, and 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 he he falls and and it's funny. But but I do think that um, it it really is one of the most balanced episodes of the show ever. And it ends on this crazy action sequence for, for lack of a better way of putting it, which is so to your point out of the sort of tone of this show, the fact that it keeps all these plates spinning and then seamlessly leads into what I would argue one of the best season premieres ever in that two parter where you're just like, it really is at the peak of its powers. I mean, it's just, Mm -hmm. you really sense that it's all clicking in a way that um, you might argue it never does again. And that's not a slag on it. That's just like, you know, that's just the way that that the cookie crumbles to some degree. I'm curious, production-wise, if they shot the first half of season two premiere um, when they shot this, because it's the same location, which doesn't, it doesn't look like it's on a stage. It looks like it's a location. So that feels, I mean, it was, (laughs) <laughs> early 2000s and everybody had more money so god bless but yeah. um that it also is like it's immediately picked up. it's an immediate pickup so it mm-hmm. feels like they would be like we're gonna do this what's interesting to me is like how much restraint did it take not to have the season finale end on josh like falling over 
Like how much strength did it take? Yes. Because if I'm anyone involved in this show, <laughs> including Bradley Whitford, yes. I'm like, I want to see how much people are going to cry about me for the summer. Like it's because it's it's also it's almost like a second cliffhanger. The second you pick yes. it up, you feel like you're going to yes. find out what happened and everybody's OK and everybody is OK. And then it's Josh and then it's the president and it's like boom, boom, boom. After that, it's so pulls the rug out from under you again because you think it's going to be OK. And then, you know, there's like all these great moments that they have in it. It's like, you know, Sam's the one who took CJ down and like all of this is great. But I wonder, I bet they shot that all because it makes, it would make the most sense. Um, yes. it, it doesn't production-wise make sense to me that they wouldn't. Um, I agree. I, I mean, and it's, we're also, it wasn't a time where someone posts a picture on Twitter of Bradley Whitford yeah. shot or something like that. So it's like, you probably could have got away with it in terms well, of Well, you also, nobody else was probably around because it's just CJ right. and Josh, or it's just Toby right. and Josh. So you yeah. actually could shoot that behind, yeah. you know, Anything. a wall yeah. and yeah. have that just ready for next year. Um, so yeah, it's really, but I, that would require so much restraint from me to not show that. And I bet the network executives were having a nervous breakdown. They were like, it's 25 yeah. million, we could have 50 million people show up. Like, what are you doing? Also, just every time you mentioned that like 13 million people watched it and you were like, oh, but 25 million people watched the premiere is like, yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's insane. Nobody it's watches insane. anything that much. I, I mean, I, I, I do want to, um, I have to say that watching yesterday the the assassination attempt at the end of this episode, um, I felt myself getting strangely emotional watching it because, first of all, I hadn't watched it in a while, but I've become very sensitive to to guns of late and seeing guns in movies and television shows, and and the way that we wield them as plot points, um, and and I understand why we do it. I'm I'm a writer and I get it. And life and death, high stakes, all that kind of stuff. I get it. Um, and it's not that I necessarily quote unquote hate guns or people that that you know carry guns, what have you. Um, but seeing these characters that I love, like in my bones being shot by white supremacists in a, in through the lens of 2021 when this is a very real thing again um it just really was just a a much more powerful ending than i remembered it ever being um i don't know if you found that it was that it that yeah. it hit you on that level too but it does i mean it's interesting i i rewatched this not to get too heavy but you know, just... no i'm it's fine <laughs> i've rewatched this many times over the past few years because it's i just sort of sure, rewatched sure. the first season every now and then yeah. um so it doesn't affect me that much because it's almost like you know when you've watched something so many times sure. it's wrote you don't you don't have that what does affect me is sort of what comes out noel in season two yes. really yeah. affects me the ptsd episode the yeah. jo- like which is such an incredible episode of television yeah. like it's talk about a play. It's like kind of a play between um, Arkin and, and Bradley Whitford, which is really interesting, but sort of that anything that's dealing with trauma is very, is very pronounced to me lately. Like I feel like that, gee, I wonder why, Um, like dealing with, (laughs) you know, Um, so that is the other thing that I remember watching when I rewatched, I've got, I think to like, the end of season two um, last year is who the target was in, in this, that to me was like, Oh God, because the target is Charlie. Charlie and yeah. that 
and obviously them being white supremacists, Charlie, yeah. the only black regular on the television show, um, obviously yeah. Fitz Wallace is a guest star and he's a, and he's a prominent guest star and is, is part of the series, but Charlie is the only black actor in the opening credits to then have that be a conversation, have that be a plot piece and a specific piece in this episode. And then obviously carries through and is really, I mean, it's 2000, right? Like it's, this is 21 years ago. It's not like anything has changed. That for me is the thing that is so significant is sort of over the past year, everything that has happened and, um, the Black Lives Matter movement becoming yeah. much more prominent and obviously the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and a sundry of yeah, other others, yeah. black Americans that shouldn't have been murdered um, at the hands of prominently white cops or white supremacists. It's really difficult to watch that. And again, yeah. talking about timeliness and prescience and things that haven't changed, it's like, you know, really guys, this is still... Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. No, it's crazy. It's it it, it really is. Um, it, it's also interesting to me to think about how um, sure-footed this show was, and how shows that that sort of traffic in the same terrain have become, I would argue, perhaps too soapy, have become too bombastic, and kind of mm-hmm. too kind of um, just sort of too grandiose for their own good mm-hmm. um, that the issues that you and I are talking about are getting lost in the, in, in all of this. Right. I mean, and mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't, there's no reason to single out specific shows, but I think you know which shows I'm talking about where mm-hmm. it's just like, we're, you're, you, you're, you're making a show in the political landscape about politics. I feel like it's your duty to at least be trying to mm-hmm. push a narrative and and to educate people about these things and the fact that this show and this show has its faults i'm not i'm certainly not sitting here saying that it doesn't it's a, it's uh you know it's a well i mean one time. of the fact being that that there's um, only one black character there's only one black <laughs> actor that Dulé yes. hill is the only black yes. actor in the opening credits throughout the duration of the series yes. um is crazy being one of them yeah yes but uh, but i i just think it's it's a it's their duty to do this and i i don't i don't think that unfortunately um they take it that serious maybe as seriously as they could i couldn't agree more i think it's um impossible to talk about sort of anything now for me without talking about a, a number of 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 real life issues we're all dealing with and yeah. Um, particularly ones that we shouldn't be dealing with anymore. You know, mm-hmm. um, equity for black Americans is still mm-hmm. like that still educating children about the history of black America and um, having to like argue about whether or not that should be taught. It should not be a conversation and should not be a topic. And here we are. Um, oh, yeah. I think, yeah. you know, it's interesting. I was um, I was watching something this morning, and my husband and I were talking about um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which I don't know if you've seen. Um, nope, I tried. Okay, nope, <laughs> totally fine. Um, what's really interesting to me about that show, and it, and and the most successful aspect of that show, is the conversation of what does a black Captain America mean? What does it mean for a black man to be Captain America? What does it mean for him to turn it down? 
what does it mean um, for him to, and Malcolm Spellman, who's the writer and showrunner who I have utmost respect for, really handled this in such a remarkable way. And one of the most interesting conversations that happens in the show is between Sebastian Stan and um, Anthony Mackie. And and Sebastian Stan is like pissed at him for not being Captain America. And Anthony Mackie is like, can you understand the fact that it means something different for a black man than it does for a white man? And it's like the first time that Sebastian Stan's character has ever heard this. And I feel like that's happening, been happening on a daily basis for a year is like white America has been constantly reminded or taught that it is different to be white in this country than to be a person of color in this country. And it shouldn't, um, but that is the way that this country exists right now and it should not. It's crazy to me that a (laughs) network television show 21 years ago is having that conversation in, I think, a pretty explicit way when network television now or political television now is too afraid to do it because it's too hot button. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, motherfuckers, it is too hot button. Are you kidding me? Like, of course yeah. it is. It's crazy yeah. to me. It's, it, it is, it's, yeah. There, there's also quite frankly, a, a subtlety and a nuance to the way that the West Wing did it that, I mean, I think about that scene in the top of season two when, uh, when Butterfield tells, Charlie, that the president wasn't the target. And I mean, again, uh, Dooley Hill doing just incredible work on this oh. show. I mean, what he's able to convey without words. Um, so with underrated. Just this, I think so expressive and such yeah. a beautiful, beautiful actor. Um, and just him being like, oh, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like just, and, and processing that, um, which is something that I, I would argue you feel in Charlie's character for the remainder of the series that you, mm-hmm. that there is that part of him that feels like he almost got all of these people killed and mm-hmm. how the, 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 by the, his existence, by, 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 by merely exist- being there, yes. by merely existing. Yeah. And because it's of the awful. inherent hate towards his existence, yep, all of these people were almost killed. Yeah. I totally agree. I think it's, and I think that's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know how we don't, t- uh, whatever. <laughs> I could talk about but, I, but I would also say too, you know, Fitzwallis has a great, is, is a prominent part of this episode as well. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, he figures quite prominently into the downed uh, soldier that they rescue. There's a great scene um, near the end of the episode where they're in the Oval Office and they're waiting for a phone call. And Fitzwallis is talking about the carpet and how mm-hmm. there's like there's one where the, the eagle is looking towards the olive branches and there's one where uh, the, the eagle is looking towards the arrows. And in wartime, they change it. And Bartlett's like, I, I don't know. I don't know how they do that. I yeah. mean, <laughs> and, and then eventually Fitzwallis, you know, connects him on the phone and Bartlett's like, I'm going to find out what's going on with that carpet for you because this is such a wonderful, like they, they, there is something about Fitzwallis who is, I mean, John Amos is such a tremendous actor. John Amos is, I mean, there should be, I feel like there's a bottle podcast just about John Amos because (laughs) there's also like, it's sort of insane to me that he has such a small role in this series. He's one of the most experienced and lauded actors on this series. Um, And he's, very sort of well I think he's very well used um and and his character is obviously we know who Fitzwallace is and he's such yeah. a prominent I think specific and significant character for everybody but he's not but like I don't know I, I think now you'd be like John Amos sort of like he has his own you know HBO show <laughs> that he's like the third lead on yeah. and we're all just like giving him all the awards he's just first of all 
his presence, just just his mere presence yeah. is just tremendous. But he's funny as hell too. Like he can deliver a joke so droll and and just so perfectly. Um, yeah, and he comes well, he has in. One of my, yeah. So yeah, I was just saying, he has one of my all time favorite lines, which is Charlie's first episode, which is when. I think Leo is like, would you have a problem with a black man holding the door open and carrying the president's suitcase? And he's like, I'm a black man and I hold the door open and carry the president's suitcase. <laughs> and like his delivery of it, it you know, he's like getting to the point, yeah, but like yeah. his delivery of it is so, I think, truthful. And and this also goes to what I think we've talked about before, which is the reverie that the presidency has in this show and that the office of the president has in this show, which like, Oh, low, oh, woe is me. Do I remember those days when everyone felt yeah. when we cared and we felt that way? And that's what's so interesting. Also, looking back is like my fan is on outside. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely <laughs> startled. That scared the shit out of me. I was like, there's something moving really close to me. I, I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly about Fitz Wallace. I think that he is, is used. Um, I wish he was in it more. But when he is there, he leaves such an impression. His delivery is perfect, but also they give him these incredibly powerful moments. Um, that moment you're, you're referring to where uh, Leo asked him about Charlie and Fitzwallis says, essentially, I've got bigger fish to fry. Like yeah. there's much bigger issues in this world. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm the, I'm one of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Like, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's what it is. Um, it, it's, it's really good stuff. I, I, I also feel like to your point, the episode sort of, the, the cyclical nature of the episode and the way that it, you earlier alluded to sort of how it kind of perfectly tees up the various things that it's going to wrap itself up. I mean, you have this signal that, that Sam has decided uh, we're, we're doing for those who can't see us, we're doing the signal yeah. Um, yeah. Of, of essentially a, a plane taking off. Um, he Which gives is so Toby silly. That's, it's, it's so, so silly. silly. And I love that they, this is the other thing. Like, I feel like the West Wing is for the most part fairly self-aware. Yeah. And like, even when Josh is falling in the chair, they, it's like, it's kind of self-aware that it's a West Wing yeah. prank. And like, mm-hmm. we've done this before and you know, we're going to do this in this episode. But like, it's just so silly. And then they do it and it makes you cry. Like, what and the it hell? Works. It's so ridiculous. It's, there, there's a wonderful moment between Sam and Bartlett where he does the signal for Bartlett. And Sam says, should I spread it around? And Bartlett <laughs> says, I think it's going to get around all by itself. But if you want to help it along, and there's something wrong with that. There's something the look great on Martin it. Sheen's face <laughs> when Rob Lowe is doing that is just so one of pure disdain. It's He's wonderful. Just, it's interesting, too. I wonder if this is kind of this episode does signify to some extent, the beginning of the end of Sam, because he's the only one of the ensemble that is really not integral to any of the storylines, because at a certain extent, to a certain point, Bartlett becomes part of the Toby storyline and becomes more important. Mm -hmm. And Josh obviously has the, has the campaign finance and Hoynes and everything else. So it's sort of interesting to watch if if we're, if we do what we were talking about and you watch the pilot and then you watch this episode, I actually think Sam has taken the biggest step down and is the one who to an unfortunate degree, because I don't think it's anyone's fault except for the -hmm. the fact that there's too many people in this show um, that he's ultimately going to be replaceable because he's not, you know, they, they try so many things with him. It really sort of feels like, well, to some, to, I know for a fact, like they didn't think Martin Sheen was going to be lead of the show. 
So like they were going to give screen time to everybody else 10% more and probably Sam gets 20, 30% more because Bartlett's not in it. Once Bartlett becomes a main character, Stockard Channing, Elizabeth Moss, like you start getting all of these other characters involved, Sam does become kind of, you know, repetitive. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I'd love to sort of know the, the, the politics of the situation because I know that, that obviously Rob Lowe signs on thinking this is going to be the Rob Lowe show and it, it quickly doesn't. I've read Rob Lowe's memoir, so I can tell you. Oh, please. Um, first of all, highly recommend it. Okay. Very entertaining. Okay. Really good little tidbits in there. If you're a fan of The Outsiders, I recommend it. Um, <laughs> and the DNC. But, yeah, you know, it's a good one. Um, uh, he, it's really interesting. He talks about it of like, he actually knew it was an ensemble, like he, he, but he was definitely the biggest star of the ensemble. Like Bradley Whitford was nobody. Uh, Alison Janney was nobody. Um, Richard Schiff. And so, yeah, I mean, it was all, it was all New York actors, Broadway actors, you know? Um, and so I think there was some, he doesn't say it, but I, there probably was some under like anticipation that he's the biggest star on the show. Mm-hmm. And he has kind of the like sexy storyline in the, in the pilot. So there's sure. a little bit of that. Um, but he like, he does, he talks about actually like his leaving the show and who knows if this is revisionist history or whatever, but he does talk about where like, it wasn't contentious. It was kind of going to what we're talking about. It was like, I'm not really doing a lot anymore and mm. that's okay. But like, I don't want to be here anymore if that's what's going to happen. And honestly, it's better than what happened with poor, sweet, um, cutting edge, um, Moira Kellett, who just never appears again, um, gone forever. Just disappears. Yeah. And then Sam, yeah. you know, and then he does, he comes back for the series finale. So, you know, and like the last, he does. Episodes, yeah, he, I, I have, I have, I mean, Roblo has been on the West wing weekly. He's, he's been very open about the fact that there's no ill will between anybody. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do think that, I mean, it, there was a contract negotiation, you know what I mean? Actors are yeah. signed for four years, give or yeah. take. Um, so, you know, uh, I'm sure money had something to do with it as well, to some degree no. or another. Yeah, money's never a part never of it. Never a part of it. Uh, I, I, I also think, too, you know, obviously Sorkin leaves the show in season four uh, as well. Um, what Sam Seaborn would have been in a John Wells West Wing is anyone's guess. Um, and, and you know, I, I think that it's, it's interesting to think about that. I think they write Sam off very well. Um, mm-hmm. And I love Josh Molina on the show. So, like, it's not as though it was you know, catastrophic. Um, but, but to your point, I have point, one note, yeah, I have one note about them yeah, writing yeah. the show. Why can't you just have him win? Cause like after he, like, that's true. I don't, I, like that was the heartbreak for me. It was like, we'll just let the yeah, guy he loses. win. It's yeah. like a district we don't care about. It's in California. We're never going to see it again. It's not like you're promising him to be on the show. It's not like this is the house of representatives television show. So I just yeah. like, it was kind of, it was like a it's also such a great Sam episode that whole time yes, when he's trying yeah. to figure out if he's the candidate or not. It's really funny and like he's yeah, trying to get people on the, it's really I actually think it's like peak Rob Lowe that episode. And so then for him to like leave the show and lose was like yeah. Well this just I feels don't know like why I they made him twice. lose. I'm it's not really, really sure why. It feels vindictive in a way that's like <laughs> don't like just let him go. Like let him yeah. go. 
I like that. I mean, I do like that he joins the Santos administration in season seven. That's nice. But I also kind of resented that he went back to being a lawyer. Like he he basically like regresses to what he was in the Shadow of Two Gunmen. Where I'm just like, but it's also yeah. It's also like Bartlett tells him you're going to be president one day. Like that is one of the most significant lines in in this show. I think because it does set Sam apart from everybody else. And I think he does feel significantly different in that way from the beginning. Like that is, he does feel like the politician or like the presidential one and that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And literally the main character of the television show points at one of the other main characters of the television show and says, you're going to be president one day. And then he loses. Yeah. And then he goes and back to the lawyer. And then he works in the administration. Like, yeah, that doesn't. I don't know. I I was hoping like he when we met him he was like a. I do think in the series finale he's a congressman or a senator. I think like when they meet at the church. Yes. Or I think you're right. the or I the think library. Right. Yes. I yes. think he's yes. like gone into politics, but like couldn't we have done that? But I I think this all speaks to something that I think is really interesting, which is that he's kind of the spottiest character on the show, and by that I mean like. They kind of want him with Mallory, but then they don't really do that. They kind of want him with with Ainsley Hayes, but then they can't get Emily Proctor to sign on as a series regular. Or, or I mean, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing, I, Ainsley? I don't know. Oh. So, so there's that. Then they bring his ex fiance in for the season yeah. three State of the Union episode. Uh, he he's you know you've got the episode with his dad where he finds out about his father in season two. Like, there's just kind of all these things that they mm-hmm. kind of bring into his orbit that never totally pay off. And I don't well, know if that's, yeah. you know, the series, the way the show is, or if that's Sam's character. I don't know. Well, it's interesting because everything you're, t- you're speaking about feels like a bottle episode. Like those yeah. feel very significant yes. Sam episodes rather than like CJ. Ongoing. I think we can talk yeah. about, yeah. you know, yeah. significant ongoing um, storylines or any for any of the other characters, we could do that. Yeah. And he, I do feel like he's the most under, I, at some point underutilized, but also feels kind of like the one that tips us over. We don't, you know, I don't really need to see the romantic life of Sam Seaborn. You know, like I don't, that's not, Yep. If it's it, so, and when you kind of look at the pairings of everybody, like Toby and CJ become a more interesting pair to some extent mm-hmm. than Toby and Sam, because we kind of have seen the Toby and Sam like writery Dynamic, thing. Yeah. And I know like all writers think it's interesting to watch writers, write. It's not interesting to anybody else except us. And so like, and even <laughs> I, at a certain point I'm watching it. I'm like, all right guys, I get it. Like, it's fine. Uh, get how a speech is written. I, and I'm there. It's fun. But like, I, I do think there's a, and even in like season two in the premieres in the shadow of two gunmen, he's paired very specifically with Josh and like Josh, he doesn't have his own journey. It's with Josh. It's if Josh is going to go, I'm going to go. So it's interesting. I I also think it's interesting that Sorkin has CJ fall in the pool. It feels like a real like shout out to the trolls. It feels like everybody, it's like he heard, he heard you. It was like, guess what? (laughs) I, however, still find it hilarious. I do too. Cause I was in Jenny's funny. Yeah. And I think Schiff says, like, there's a pool there, or like, you fell in your pool there. The, CJ, you fell in the pool there, so, CJ. It's so funny. It's just like the fact that it took Alice and Janney this long to win an Academy Award is just heresy. But I'm glad say. she has one. 
but she has. So happy to. I, I I do think you're 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 hitting on something with the Sam Seaborn character that I do think is really interesting. I think part of it is the Rob Lowe of it all, which is that mm-hmm. we've got Rob Lowe. He's hot. We think that people want to see him be romantic with people, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and it's unfortunate. And I would I would argue it might be a thing that Rob Lowe always has to deal with, right? Which is that he's mm-hmm. an attractive guy, and and they always kind of <laughs> so rough for him. It's so oh, hard. Poor but, guy. but I do. But yeah. I do think there's something to that. I mean, I do think about, you know, he, he notoriously turned down Grey's Anatomy. The the role of McDreamy was was written for him. Um, and I kind of sort of understand why maybe he did that, which is that, like, mm-hmm. do I want to be lusted? Do I want to be another sex symbol? Is that right. a thing that I want to do again? Um, it's just interesting. And then in Parks I, and Rec, he kind of plays against yeah. that, which is really it's, interesting. Like, he... Yeah. He's laughing at the joke with us, mm-hmm. and he's sort of playing a version of Sam Seaborn, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in Small Town America. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like it's it's really. I think that's he does feel very self aware of both his looks. Again, let me play you a small violin, but <laughs> like his sex symbol status. I mean, the yes. funny thing is, is for I feel like people who are at the the generation below us who are discovering the West Wing now and sort of seeing this is like, they have no concept of the Brat Pack. Whereas we have the touchstone of the Brat Pack. Like I was a little young, but like we watched the breakfast club and seen almost fire and all of these things when I was a kid. So I knew who Rob Lowe was when I saw him in, and my second mention of the outsiders in one podcast, like I knew who he was and like had some touchstone for him that he, I mean, it wasn't just that he was a movie star. He was like one of the biggest teen idols on the planet for a few years. Um, This generation has no concept of that, which I think is really interesting. Like they, they, it's gone. Nothing. It's it's kind of, I mean, that's, I mean, the laundry. Wait till we tell them Martin Sheen is Charlie Sheen's dad. It's going to like really (laughs) blow their mind. Yeah. So, um, so as we've talked about the end of this episode is a cliffhanger. So I wanted to talk to you about cliffhangers and season finales just in general. Um, and what some of your favorite cliffhangers are. You know, I do think I that I, made <laughs> I do think that cliffhangers are a little bit of a relic of a different time. Um, we don't see them as much as we used to. They do feel very broadcasty because to your point mm-hmm. earlier, like it's only three months and people can, you know, whatever. Um, now you just don't really see it as much. Television's mm-hmm. obviously changed. Um, but uh, I wanted to hear what some of your favorite cliffhangers might be. Sure. I think that's totally true. I think we're dealing with shorter runs also. And so it's just not part of the language of it. Mm -hmm. Um, My favorite, let's see, only two of them are network, interestingly. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Um, Lost. We have to go back. The best. So great. Because it's also a full season where you suddenly realize like, oh, shit. Like I have been watching these differently. It does a couple different things, which are like, are for me working in television are like the things that are unattainable that you want to attain, which is working in film or television, which is like, you want to make the audience want to rewatch it. And the end of season three of lost, it's like, Oh shit, I have to go watch the whole season again to be like, Oh wow, this is this is that timeline, and it's really and it's really really well done. It's it's very well crafted, 
and also just peak Matthew Fox crying face. Like, can't get enough of it. Can I, I mean, also I just can, say too? Great in that I, I remember watching that finale. And it blew my mind, but also it, I remember thinking like this show can do anything, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the idea of just blowing open your show and, and as a fan or just a viewer being able to think like, I have no idea where this is going. Anything is possible. I am game for whatever this show is bringing at me is a gift. But totally. Yes. And, and they did that a few different times on the show, not even yeah. in season finales, like, the Hatch and, you know, yeah. Charlie and there's a ton yeah. of them. Um, I rewatched that show during um, the pandemic season one. Also pretty tight. Like a really, you know, that that one is, again, like it's pretty rare that there's episodes in there that you're like, eh, I could have done without this. Um, so congrats to them. My <laughs> other network one is Alias to Your Jump. The best. Which is phenomenal alias also phenomenal first two seasons i would say are pretty like impenetrable they're pretty great um the show takes a little bit of a turn for me after that that cliffhanger so that's the only bummer because it's like i'm also like man two years and you got married like you met a woman and you (laughs) married her in two yeah. years, my man, yeah. it's just yeah. a little, so, but I, I think is like, that was totally, I was like, what the fuck just happened? I'll say this about Alias. I do feel like, um, JJ notoriously runs the rooms that he was sort of much more sort of fundamentally a part of. It was a lot of like, let's blow up the show and we'll mm-hmm. figure out how we put it back together on the other side. Mm-hmm. And season three of Alias is what happens when you don't have a plan and you're just like, we'll put it together on the other side. And you're like, mm. yeah, <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's interesting, but it's also, I feel like Alias is kind of like a fundamentally JJ show because you're yes, also talking yes. about whatever the box thing is or what's, yes. it's not Moriarty. Big it's, red what's balls. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's like, you know, whatever the box. That whenever, Rimbaldi. There you go. It's like so JJ and like kind of like has yeah. gone to the other side and then yeah. we pull him back yeah. and we're like, this is where it is. So <laughs> there's, it's certain for me, that's like the purest of, of JJ Abrams. Yeah. Um, but I love that philosophy. It's such a great philosophy to have as a writer. I think so many rooms can get really afraid. I mean, I've done one season of television. Like, I've only done limited series or a final season of television that was not intended to be a final season. So I'm not really the person to ask about how to do multiple seasons. But I do like the idea of even episodically being like, what are we holding back on? Let's just blow it up. And like, let's see how that goes. Even as sort of like a, it's my least favorite writer's room phrase, but I'm going to use it as a thought experiment. Like what happens if we, like, what's the thing we're most afraid of? It's almost like in therapy, you don't realize what you're afraid of. You're sort of like sure. holding on to something. And then as you get rid of it, you're like, oh, it's actually X, Y, and Z is the scariest thing for me. So we could do all of these things or we do that. You right. know, I think it's actually a really good philosophy that I'm going to steal if I ever do. <laughs> there you go. Um, what else you got? I've got two from Game of Thrones. Wow. Okay. I have the red wedding, which sure. I just think is like, again, Insane. it's, it's, it's just, I mean, I, I, it was just such an exquisite episode of television alone. Like, and then all the ramifications it had for the entirety of the series is just yeah. sort of mind blowing. John So's death. I'm like, not super excited about this pick. 
It's not my. It, it would not be high in my draft order. Yeah. But it like it's and it's less like a personal preference more than this is the last cliffhanger I can remember like captivating people for months. That like true. it was like six or seven months or a year, however long long until the next season came out. It was that people kept talking about like, is Jon Snow going to come back? Is he dead? And there were like, really, (laughs) there were the people who had read the book and were like, guys. Um, (laughs) And like, like, but that was the, but that was also the last book that had been written. So it was Mm -hmm. like, nobody really knew it was going to happen. Except I think book readers were like, there's like a lot still left for him to do. So don't think it's going to (laughs) happen. Um, so like that, but it's really on there because I think it was the last time that like the world was captivated by a cliffhanger. And I remember like breakdowns of that last shot. And there was like, his blood forms into a wolf. Like it could. And I was like, all right, guys, got to find hobbies. Um, and then my last pick would be Mm. the Dexter Rita in the bathtub. Interesting. Okay. I was just emotional. Oh, I was like. (laughs) I, that, first of all, that season is so good. The John mm-hmm. Lithgow season is so good. And then, like, like it's over, and then it's not over. There, there are two that I that I want to bring up. Uh, another JJ one that I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the season one finale of Felicity. I was going to bring it up. I recently just watched it. But I have to say, not to be... A contrarian. No. Not <laughs> to be, like, kicking a dead horse for... 15 to 20 years the haircut is really problematic <laughs> and it's it's I can't like the believe whole story the whole storyline of, of the haircut is problematic and what happens with ben is so problematic in like the first two episodes of season two that it really hurts the like the look back of the finale for me well okay in a vacuum Yes. I just, I remember watching that finale. I remember there were people that were pausing and trying to rewind to see what she says to the cabbie, even though they didn't know what, who she was picking. So it but didn't matter what she was saying in right. the cab. Um, I just think it's a great cliffhanger that leads into, that, that leans into a love triangle, which you don't see all that often. Alias did it to some degree, <laughs> but... Isn't it always Ben? Oh no! Is are we gonna do this? Triangle? Are we gonna? Are, are you a Ben stan? Uh, of course, I'm. There's only one team, and it's Team Ben. Obviously, That's insane. it is. That is insane. But okay. Um, I'm sorry. Does uh, Noel is the worst? Like truly the worst. Oh my god! I just rewatched <laughs> the first two seasons, and I was like, Oh my god! You are the whiniest, meanest person. <laughs> I cannot it's not deal mean. With you. There's nothing oh mean god, about so him. Mean to her. In season two, he's super mean when she gets the haircut. Oh, but yeah, okay, but, yeah, but and she does, also yeah. like get over it, my man. He didn't, she didn't pick you. Also, you cheated on your girlfriend with Felicity, and then you broke up with her so you could go sleep with your ex girlfriend. And then when she slept with somebody, you broke up with her and you made her feel like shit. Get to the twenty first century, douche. <laughs> I was so rewatching that. I was like, you're terrible. Well, okay, no, no, make some. <laughs> The whole Jennifer Garner thing is like truly mind blowing to me that somehow Felicity gets blamed for it. Just gonna say that. I mean, to be fair, he does not have sex with Jen Garner. He stops. He leaves with the intention of doing so. Doesn't actually follow through. She actually cheats on. She actually has sex with what's his face. They break up. Not cheating. They broke up. Listen, I'm not gonna. I don't want to relitigate this, but I'll just say this. The fact that you and I can still talk about it says something. 
the fact that it's still that 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 we care says something um i also think that ben's really dumb but that's neither here nor there um i don't that wasn't the that wasn't part of the category of or the criteria this is true. This is true. The other cliffhanger I wanted to bring up was The Good Place. At the end of season mm-hmm. one, um, mm-hmm. the note where it says, find Cheedy, um, mm-hmm. is is really great. That show had really great cliffhangers, um, which you don't see often in comedy. I mean, Friends had uh, some of them. Um, mm-hmm. Some were better than others. Um, there's actually one in 99, which is kind of great, where, <laughs> where, where Russ and Rachel get married in Vegas because they get drunk. Oh, so um, good. Which That's is a really such a good episode. <laughs> it's the whole Vegas thing is like... yeah halfway through it you're like oh this is still going and then they just get hammered and it's like an entire episode of them being drunk it's so funny it's really good. they are that was also like for me like starting at peak schwimmer like once they let schwimmer kind of go and be like sort of slapsticky and funny and wacky he finally made sense on the show don't they say like the last line of the episode is something like hello mrs mrs ross hello mr rachel or something like yes that. it's phenomenal it's so good they also did a good i mean i think their only successful cliffhangers are when they do have to do with ross and rachel because there's like yeah. the one where rachel's pregnant at the wedding which does eventually have to do with ross and then the one at ross's wedding where mm-hmm. he says rachel, rachel instead of yeah. emily yeah. who also sweet emily just sweet emily you're also Poor terrible emily. She was terrible. Sorry. You know uh, what was, I can't even remember the character's name now, but whoever Vaughn marries um, is oh, also Oh, yeah. Terrible. Doesn't she also turn out to be a bad guy? Yes. Well, because season three is just a mixed bag. They're just like, it's Melissa George, who's a great actor, but right. like, she's just like, she's they're like, guy. well, what are we going to do? Uh, yeah. I guess she's bad. I it's really fair. feel like we have to talk about Felicity more because I'm, I'm. Well, okay. I just, I'll just say this. I spent hours talking about Noel with my husband, who agrees with me, by the way. That well, he's, he's married to you. <laughs> What's he going to say? He has that opinion. He would have that opinion regardless, I believe. I'm kidding. He's, but I do he's th- on his I way do- back home, if you can ask him. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that re-watching it when, when I did the Felicity miniseries, uh, I did find myself seeing flaws in Noel's character that I didn't necessarily see back in the day. But the I length still... of his sideburns are an extreme flaw. I will say that. <laughs> That's just, sure. Uh, I mean, okay. <laughs> I, I, I do think that, I guess why I'm a little bit more Team Noel than Team Ben is that uh, I just, I don't think that Ben brings out the best in Felicity. Um, and I might argue that Noel doesn't bring out the best in Felicity either. I mean, argue, there's an argument to be said for she should end up with neither of them at the end of this season. Which is kind of my preference would be like she didn't end up with anybody and she just right. – and she surprised she shows up to be a Cold War spy in another show with Matthew <laughs> yeah. Reese. Great. Um, Perfect. But like yeah. I, I, I do think the interesting thing mm-hmm. about that cliffhanger is it mm-hmm. totally works – Yes. Um, and I agree with you. And I think the fact that we spent this much time talking about it is significant. Yeah. But I also think that making that the conceit of the show is the way that that show failed. Like the second that the conceit of Felicity became, sure. are you going to pick Ben or Noel? Given the entire pilot is about going to New York for mm-hmm. Ben. But it yeah. does feel like part of season one is her being like, I'm here because I want to be here. And because I, you know, this is about me and not who I'm with that once the show kind of falls into the Ben drama and Noel drama, it's, it 
negates sort of like her own agency and her own kind of shape of a character, which is like the point of the show is actually to watch her go through college and experience it and what happens. And they sort of never found like the other ensemble characters to fill in, to continue to create that. Um, and I just like, I think that's so hard to make a four season show about one person and their journey is like, we're sort of not like I don't Dawson's Creek was not about Dawson. You know, it was like, yeah. it's kind of difficult. And I think there's a, there's a time that, but I'll also say that the interesting thing is that the season one finale of Felicity spawned alias. So there you Correct. go. Kind of back to Correct. Alex. I'll say one, I'll say one quick thing though. Um, and I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, because it does feel like top of season two, they they do kind of do a, a classic JJ, which is they blow up the show, right? Mm-hmm. She cuts her hair, she changes her major, she breaks up with Ben, like everything that you... That, that, he breaks that, up with her, very important. He breaks up with her, but then she also calls him a coward and says, because he... Yes, yes. yes but, yes, well, but sure. she, he breaks up with her, which I think is significant yes, because it like, makes sucks. literally yeah. no sense and yeah. is... Yes. Yeah, I like, agree. No context for the series. Whatsoever. Well, because he finds out that that she said she loved him, and he freaks out because um, yeah. he's a coward. Did you love? Yes, <laughs> exactly. So I I think that what happened was she cuts her hair, and you know, haircut hurt around the world. The ratings start to crater. WB doesn't know what to do with the show. Um, they keep moving it around. Blah blah blah. They put her back with Ben because, and they lean into the thing that they know the audience cares about. You know, they go to safe ground and say, like, we'll go back to Ben, we'll go back to Noel, like, this will work. And ultimately, they they do get juice out of it for four seasons. But had she not cut her hair, there's an argument to be made for whether or not that show's still a hit. There's a little bit more of the wind at its back, and it could have done the things that I think you and I both would have liked, which was expand the universe, have her be mm-hmm. able to be with different people in ways that are more interesting than the guys she dates in season two are rough. Oh, it's super rough. <laughs> yeah, it's real bad. It's not it's, mm, the photographer, oof, the dog episode. Oof, Ugh, that one is the dog episode was a tough one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's so funny because like the haircut actually yeah. in watching it was not rough and like sort of contextually makes sense yeah, it in makes the sense, show. Yeah. Yeah. But then they immediately, because it went so bad, they immediately abandoned it. And then you just watch poor, sweet Carrie Russell try to grow her hair out for two years. Which, like, as somebody who has, like, extremely straight yeah. hair, I did not realize that, like, it takes me six months to grow, like, four inches of hair. Okay. It took her two and a half years to get it to, like, her shoulders. It's all and, curly. Like, because it's so curly. And I, like, never – and it's just, like – they like did it and then they didn't lean into it and it was just rough. And then everyone throughout the entire season two is making fun of her hair. At some point she like starts crying and says she hates her hair. It's, it's like, so they just could never get away from it. And yeah. it's unfortunate to, I think the show, I agree. The problem for me with the Ben and Felicity of it all is they've never actually fully leaned into it because they get back together in season three, but then like they break up again because of like, she, you know, gets drunk on a frat party and like that whole which is just that whole thing is atrocious and then so they break (laughs) up again and then in season four like they sort of get back together and then it's so it's just like they never really went for it and interestingly in comparison with friends where you're like chandler monica worked it sort of shouldn't have worked but it worked i wonder what that show would have looked like if they were like you know what let's just put them together this is what the audience wants they have chemistry together Let's just see what happens if they're good for a while rather than good for like 
two episodes and then somebody fucks up and it's silly. Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree. It, the, the show is it's a really interesting show to watch now through the prism mm-hmm. of 2021 for sure. Um, it's interesting to see some of the strengths and the weaknesses of it. Um, it's also interesting to see like, you know, the Sean and Megan stuff, which actually works. So there is some totally really works. great storylines with them. Yeah. Um, there's some stuff that works, but then like Julie never really works. And like, it's all just, Oof. it's, it's, and then you've got like, yeah, it's, it's all just, messy in a way that's fascinating but also mm-hmm. not necessarily great television all the time um but it it, it is uh it's weird the the haircut thing which i think is fascinating i had um uh karina mckenzie on to talk about mm. that episode and she said that she did a show at warner brothers and they still have oh yeah a rule now like that oh, yeah. haircut literally changed haircuts oh, it's for cast it's, it's in it's in contracts you it's can't incredible. you cannot cut your hair without consulting with everybody like it's so it's great. crazy. It's so great. Unless you put it in, like yeah. actors can put it in their deals and they can mm-hmm. change it. But if not, it's standard because of that. It's pretty crazy. Um, hang on, it let me really ask is. you back. Hey, honey, oh. <laughs> team Ben or team Noel? <laughs> Sorry, what was it? Can you say a little louder? Always been. Thank you. <laughs> Forever Ben. See, look at that man. I mean, listen. Uh, yeah, he just I said get it. so dreamy. Agreed. That hair. How? What could you? I mean, talk about hair. He's also Canadian. That's why you love him, I think. He is. I'm Canadian, um, the, and I'm just repping for my you know, home country. He's a great Canadian. See, what, what are you talking about? You can't be Team Noel. You're a rep for your country. <laughs> um, I think the other thing that's interesting is yes. I also wonder if Felicity had been a 10-episode HBO Max show, what would that first season, second season look like? That's Again, because I think it is – very difficult to center one series around one person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Alias is about Sydney, but it's also about the variety of characters mm-hmm. that surround her. Mad and Men, obviously, is an ensemble. And like, yeah, and it's spy stuff, which is stuff, different. Yeah. There's yeah. action. It's sort of a different series. Like, WandaVision is, but mm-hmm. it's not. Like I, so, But I think also works because yeah. six, eight, ten episodes. I do wonder if there's a version of Felicity that really succeeds because each season of, or each year of college is one season of of like eight episodes, 10 episodes. Did you watch little voice? No, I haven't. Because Little Voice kind of tried to do this, okay. Um, and I, I don't, I don't say that to say anything uh, negative about Little Voice, although it didn't work for me. But you know, um, but this was the Sarah Bareilles, J.J. Abrams mm-hmm. show that for Apple TV, um, and um, and in fact, the lead from that show is on White Lotus right now, and she's really good on and it. And I believe the other lead of that show is about to be in my show. <laughs> oh, there you go. Colton Ryan is is uh, that's amazing. About to be in my show, yeah. Um, but but yeah, it's I I guess the I think what you and I are both circling here is that Felicity. Um, is a great show and kind of a show that could only exist when it existed. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that you can do something that's that low stakes, that's that sort of, quite frankly, grounded and so sort of earnest and genuine um, today. I think that people and are unfortunately a little too jaded for it. Totally. And I think... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves... Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's interesting. I mean, sorry, you just made me think of something that's not a response no. to what you said, but is which is the, the other real problem about rewatching it is all the music is different, which is like a real significant change. It's really, it's it's really brutal. And it's something that really feels like it takes away from the show because this, the music of that show was so important Mm -hmm. and specific to the time and like, and was hip. Like I remember listening to that and there were always ads on the WB afterwards. I was like, here's the song and the CD and like where you could get it. Um, And watching it now with like really bad music yeah. from temp like that's feels, yeah. It's, yeah it's all temp yeah. it feels bad is really rough um so i i think actually that also significantly takes away from the success of the series it's for sure i mean dawson yeah. if you don't go if you oh, don't same, cut yeah. to paula cole singing i, I don't want to wait i don't know what the fuck we're doing like it's it's yeah. just like it's crazy to me, I understand it's expensive. I understand that the studios are cheap right now and that when it comes to streaming, they don't want to pay for the music rights. Okay. But like, you have to acknowledge how important it is to the tone of your shows. It's crazy. And I, I, it's also interesting because I think it goes to, I mean, bringing this background stork and we've talked about this before is how significant music is to him. And he doesn't, he does use it very sparingly. It's, it's usually score. And at that, even at that, it's pretty minimal. He doesn't have Mm -hmm. a lot of music throughout. Um, And I think we maybe talked about this last time, but the needle drop at the end of season two is like, there's no way you can hear that song. And if you've seen this show and not think about Bartlett in the rain and like putting his hands in his pockets and that whole thing, like there's just no way to do that. And so for a show that, like music is super important to me as a writer. Mm-hmm. I sometimes write music into the series if it's super important, um, which is like such a no-no, but whatever it is, what it is. Um, I didn't do it when I was a staff writer because that would have definitely gotten me yelled at. But now I, now I feel like, <laughs> you know, like every three episodes I'll write in something, but um, it's really significant. And if I can't get that song or a song that's sort of in my head is an appropriate alt they don't just take it out and like, we'll just have a conversation about it. I cannot imagine what it would be like to be a creator, like to be JJ or Matt Reeves mm-hmm. watching Felicity now. And, and music is so significant yeah. to them and so significant mm-hmm. throughout their, their work to watch this, just be like thrown temp in there brutal. is, brutal. Oh, that's so hard. Like it hurts me to imagine. Yeah, it's brutal. I mean, it, it, in fact, you know, they made a very big deal out of, they, put the original music in the pilot and the finale on the box set of Felicity's first season because they knew that they couldn't afford all of it, but they wanted at least to have those two episodes have the original music, but it's, it's crazy. So I have one last question for you before I let you go. Um, And it ties into 
essentially everything that we've been talking about here. And it's something that I that I tweeted about the other day, and I'm very curious your thoughts on this. You know, I've, I've been oh, watching wait, West wait, Wing. Wait, 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 we forgot. Sorry, we forgot. It's not a cliffhanger. It's sort of a cliffhanger, but for all mankind season two. Okay, sorry. We forgot it. <laughs> we forgot it. We I was like, what's it. happening? Yes, no, we, the, the, we, if you're not watching For All Mankind, you're doing it wrong. Go watch For All Mankind. It's tremendous. You're completely doing it wrong. I don't know what you're watching. What I don't are know you what watching? you're doing with your life. Like, literally, go spend 20 hours and watch it. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Season two of, of it is sort of like a cliffhanger within oh, itself. There's it's like. so good. Okay. But this, but but that shows actually another example of 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 what I was about to ask, which is I was I, I West Wing. I was watched. I rewatched Ted Lasso before season two of that started. Mm-hmm. Watching a little bit of Friday Night Lights. For all mankind fits into this as well. Um, you know, shows about kindness, shows about goodness, mm-hmm. shows about being the best of us and striving to be our best selves. Um, we don't do it enough, and I guess my question to you is, why do you think that is? I think. I think kind of going to everything we're talking about, it's a bit cyclical and depends on what's happening in the world. Um, I think we saw when things were quote unquote good or better in, in this country, we saw the sort of rise of the anti-hero, be it Breaking Bad or Mad Men or sort of that era of, of television. Uh, Yes. Sopranos. Um, And so I think, um, when things are bad, we kind of then look to things that are good. Sure. sure. Um, it was one of the reasons, like, I think Handmaid's Tale is phenomenal. I find it, I found it very, very difficult Hard to watch, to watch. during um, the Trump era. It's not that we're necessarily out of that. Um, but, like, during that administration, mm-hmm. I found it very difficult to watch. Because I was like, oh, this is, like, a nice taste of what my future will be like. Um, Jonesy, did you want to say hi? I was <laughs> you're asking for your cameo. Um the garbage dog wants to say hi. <laughs> Trash dog, would you like to come say hi? She's just staring at me. Um, so I think that is what it is. I, I also think we are having, um, in the last few years, a much more um, global conversation about mental health and and trauma. And, and I think, you know, collectively, at least you know, liberals and Democrats and non-Trump conservatives um, have really started to talk about kind of the truly the trauma of the Trump administration and everything that had happened and sort of unpacking it and processing it and then having that be sort of a, and and not politically, and then talking about Black Lives Matter and talking about what has happened in in the last, you know, 15 months, not to mention, you know, the last 400 years, um, yeah. talking about generational trauma and, and mental health, I think has just become more of an articulate conversation and a more safe conversation. And so I think we're exploring shows that like Ted Lasso, I think is a really good example of that, that explores a show that is like a kind show, but also does talk about mental health in a really interesting mm-hmm. way. Season two premiere is really fascinating to me and it kind of like tiptoes into this conversation. And I'm yeah. curious to see where it goes it's also like a very important conversation for me. So I might also, I might be kind of like looking for it. No, sure, sure, sure. But I, I think, so I think that's kind of like specific to now is just, um, it is, I think we're just more articulate and more equipped to have these conversations than we necessarily were. Friday Night Lights, I think is just a kind show. I think it's just yeah. a show. 
I mean, it's Jason Kadem's shows are kind of like that. He feels very um, like an outlier of, of creators who just makes like sweet television and yeah. really good. Like parenthood is also really excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, but I, I do think it has something to do with kind of like our appetite for what we want to watch now. You know, I don't, I don't particularly want to watch something that's really dark right now. I feel like I'm sort of coming out of it. And so that was honestly why it took me a long time to watch for all mankind because I didn't, I thought the tone was dark. That was kind of how it was promoted in season one. So I didn't really get it. And then I was really, you know, pleasantly surprised that it's very light at times that it's um, like Joel Kinnaman is so funny in it. So good. Yeah. And I mean, that cast is stacked. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. That's ridiculous. But I, I, I think you're, I mean, I think you're absolutely hitting on something, this idea of, of what we sort of, what, what we long for has a lot to do with the world around us, obviously, and, and, and the darkness or, or light that exists. I guess I just also feel like, I mean, Ted Lasso is also another example of a show that's trying to deconstruct masculinity and, and, and Mm -hmm. what, what it means to, you know, that, that men don't need to be very binary in the way that they look at things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that's really interesting. Um, and just sort of the, the gender roles within that show, I think, across the board is just really mm-hmm. fascinating. Oh, and really, yeah. really well done. Same with For All Mankind as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, think that that's, I think that's really interesting. I guess I just sort of, yeah, I don't know. I had kind of this, this weird moment, especially with watching The West Wing in particular, where I was just like watching the show um, about people that have dedicated themselves to civil civic duty and to mm-hmm. helping other people. And, and, and um, we've seemed to have lost that in politics. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I just feel like we need to do better when it comes to the television shows that we create as well, just in terms of trying to show the best of us rather than the worst of us. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think it's, you know, television, I mean, this also goes back to what we were talking about prescient television and, and filmmaking and that none of these things we're talking about, Ted Lasso or um, For All Mankind, are about things happening currently, but they are having conversations that are conversations we're having on a daily basis, be gender roles, be it masculinity, um, be it sort of, I think, what does family look like in the 21st century? Totally, Both shows totally. really deal with um, uh, Ted Lasso, not so much, but for all mankind deals with race in a really interesting way and has big conversations about that. So I think there's like a really, um, I mean, I think even going to like Watchmen, which is a really dark show mm-hmm. is doing what you're talking about, which is like, we should look at the better, like the better part of humanity. And like, that's the part that wins rather than yeah. kind of going down like a dark rabbit hole of, of evil WandaVision, I thought, was a really fascinating show that dealt, again, with trauma and sort of ultimately was about how does somebody deal with loss? And I think those are things that I guess it's it's sort of, again, like not speaking to Friday Night Lights specifically, but speaking more to like the, mm-hmm. the shows that we're, we have now kind of in the last three, yeah. four, five years or even shorter it feels like it's less about um, like a workplace and, you know, but, and more about unique issues as human beings that feel really unique. Like talking about mental health feels really unique to every individual and doesn't necessarily feel like something that we all just talk about. We don't go to a bar and be like, 
how's everybody's mental health today? Sure, um, sure. Even though like we all should do that. We I should. think it's great. Yeah, yeah. But um, that's sort of not like, how, but there are other ways that we all weave these conversations into our daily lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's interesting about these shows is they are sort of like Ted in Ted Lasso is kind of doing that on a daily basis is like yeah. checking in on everyone and having these conversations and his dealing with his family situation is really fascinating and how he goes through it. So I do think it's, um, it's kind of not chasing like what is the subject matter necessarily that we're all talking about, but we're all kind of in a process of trying to be better humans. Yes. Some of us are and trying to be more um, like compatible to the world mm-hmm. uh, or with the world. And I think that's what these shows are reflective of in some ways of just, you know, no longer showing sort of the closed mindedness or if we are, what, how are we upsetting that and sort of flipping mm-hmm. it over? I think, I mean, I think it's very complicated. And I think that mm-hmm. with complicated things means it's difficult. And I think, you know, you know, that this town uh, tends to shy away from things that are difficult. So no. I, I, <laughs> I know it's shocking. Uh, but I just, you know, we, we we should just all strive to, you know, push ourselves to to try to kind of, to your point, mental health is a, a perfect example of, of things that we should be just absolutely, uh, there's no shame in talking about mental health. We should all be embracing it. We should just constantly be talking about it with each other and uh, the comfort in numbers of knowing that there's all sorts of people that are, you know, grappling with their own stuff and make more well, television for these things. Totally. And I think the other thing that I, I do think a thing that has changed and Friday Night Lights is a good example of sort of where this began is no longer do things feel like they have to fit into a drama or a comedy. Like yeah. it doesn't feel like if you're making a show about space, for instance, that it has to be super dramatic. Like there are really funny episodes of that. There are really funny yeah. storylines and characters in it. Um, there are also dramatic ones. Once again, watch season two finale. I mean, never recover. Um, but like, I so I think we're like we're it's it's something that's been happening in in films for a while, and I think is is really happening in television now is like the blurring the blind of drama and comedy. What what really yeah. what is it? You know, I think Friday Night Lights is kind of that has that straddling of the line at times, but I also think it's because it's reflective of people. Like we're all funny and we're, well, not all of us are funny. Some of us are funny. And, and, but we're all sad, you know, that's just who we are as people. And so it feels reflective of that. Um, But I don't know. I, I miss, I, at the same time, I miss watching shows. um, And Ted Lasso, I think is really a good example of this and it's sort of, a weird cousin of the West Wing, which is like, it's okay to be a good person, you know? Like, it's okay to be a good (laughs) person and, like, dedicate your life to making other people happy. And, like, that's okay. That's, like I said, it's a really admirable thing It's a great thing. Yeah, it's really, like, oh, that's what you want to do with your life? Great. Um, So I think that, that, I miss that. And I think that is something that Ted Lasso has brought back to us. I I absolutely agree. And, and, you know, I, I think that, I can't thank you enough, honestly, for coming on here and talking about all of this. We talked about a lot in this episode. We did. <laughs> covered, we covered a lot of ground. A lot. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I really do appreciate it. I know you're very busy and you've got lots of stuff that, that you're, and I can't wait to see all of it, but I, I, really do, uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time, Liz. Well, thank you for having me. Are you going to keep going? Are you going to do season two? No. <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's I, I, I mean... I have so much other 99 television I have to cover and some of it I would very much love to hear your thoughts on. Yeah, what are you um, doing next? Uh, Dawson's Creek is next. Woo! 
right. So I'm going to cover that. There's other shows too. Ally McBeal. Um, there's lo- lots of lots of other. Uh, there's Buffy. There's lots of shows to cover. Um, but but. Uh, and then You're on top of that, you're gonna have to get my husband on to talk Buffy. You're gonna have to get I'd Brian. I love on. that. Absolutely. I, love during that. during the, the I, admittedly, had never really watched it. I watched the first two seasons and then I never went back because I was. T- I mean, talk about a season finale, season two, season finale. Woof. Yeah, yeah you were really rough like, one. <laughs> I was. Yeah, I was like, he's the reason I'm watching. Um, <laughs> uh, we watched. I think I don't know where he is. Behan. <laughs> Did we watch up to season four of Buffy? We watched all, we watched the season five premiere and then got distracted. Um, so I watched a lot That's of That's a it. lot of Buffy. It was a lot of Buffy. I needed a little break and the break <laughs> has just turned into like a prolonged time. But it was like a lot. We were consuming a lot of Buffy. Sure. Um so I, there's a Buffy expert in this house. That's not me. I would, I absolutely, I'm going to cover Buffy. So I absolutely would love to talk with him about Buffy. There's a lot, there's, there's a lot of television to talk about still. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the podcast is going to evolve very soon. So there's all sorts of Ooh. other things that, uh, that hopefully Perfect. we'll cover as well. But um, you guys going to do, is, is ER, ER is 99 too, right? It is. I've, I've done two episodes with Brian Cogman on ER. Um, so that, yeah, I, I mean, I could talk about ER for days. <laughs> so that is, um, that, that's something that I need to, you know, there's, there's something. I love ER. ER is good. The pilot of ER is so good Perfect. and so Perfect. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy to me that they were going to kill Carol. Carol. Like it's <laughs> sort of insane. Yeah. First of all, it's just insane as a pilot that they were like, she'll just die yeah. because yeah. she died by suicide. That's how we're going to start our series. <laughs> That's how we're going to start the show. Because George Clooney was mean. Like it's, I mean, and not to not and not to generalize yes, that yes. and like sure. that there's one reason, yeah. but that is how the show was basically setting it up. Yeah. And that's really freaking intense. Yeah, it's so, crazy. It's crazy. It's also crazy that she's the only actor to win an Emmy on that show and she was yeah. supposed to be killed in the pilot. It's so bananas. She's so good too. She's so good. She's Ugh. incredible. Yeah. That whole we, show. Yeah. I mean, I not a cliffhanger, but mm. Lucy dying. The stabbing. Oh. The stabbing is that's a that is a cliffhanger. It's just within a season, but yeah, it's, it's just within a season. But yeah, yeah, that episode, like I still remember where I was sitting when I yeah. watched that. Same. Oh, it was horrifying. It was, it it was, was a crazy, crazy horrifying. Thing. Yeah, it was. And really that song, horrifying. whenever I hear that stupid song, all yeah. I think about is that getting. Stabbed. Oh, for me, for me, it's somewhere over the rainbow. I was literally at a restaurant like three days ago, and they started playing that version of somewhere over the rainbow, and I like got like, emotional. <laughs> And Brian looked at me and he was like, "ER." And I was like, "Yeah, it's just really sad. It's really it's sad." Triggered by that. And it's like not yeah. even like yeah. that. No, but it's not like that great yeah. of an episode. Yeah. It's also like Mark died a few times. It was kind of like it was. Yep. It was yep. a very sad, prolonged process. And they milked it. They they did, but like that was just like so sad. It's but really, I will never forgive. Yeah. Never forgive that they didn't bring everybody back for his for his funeral. Like, what are you guys doing? Yeah, I don't. They that's a show though. I mean, the, the cast on that show, the expansive. I mean, it would have been very hard to. I mean, I'm amazed that they were able to get Clooney to come back for that yeah. episode at the end of the, for, of the for series, Marley's, which is yeah, so great. Like, it's yeah. a great episode. They're great in it. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's that. That's one of those shows that I can't believe what they were able to do. Like, I don't. I don't think that show gets enough credit um, for being they not tr- just a huge yeah. hit, but like taking real swings. 
Well, almost in a way that like a daytime soap opera is able to last in, in ways and like completely replace cast. They replaced the cast like four times on that show. Yep. And, and at least once, like completely more tyranny suddenly becomes the lead of the show. And like no <laughs> one is left from the original cast, except like Noah <laughs> Wiley pops in and every, yeah. every now and then it's pretty bananas what they were able to do. Yeah. And like, they bring people back. It was really Laura Enos is the lead in like yeah. one of the seasons. Yeah. It's she's, I mean, and she directed up uh, some episodes of West wind that are yeah. unbelievable. She's um, an amazing director. Amazing. She's director. awesome. It's, it's, it's yeah. a, it's a great show um, that I wish more people kind of glommed onto. Um, mm-hmm. I, if it was on Netflix, I think we'd all be talking about it, but since it's on Hulu, it seems like no one watches it. It's, I, um, I mean, yeah. I rewatched the first few episodes recently. It's yeah. super dated. It definitely yeah. has like a dated vibe to it. Sure. That doesn't take anything away. It, it is dated. Mm-hmm. It was made, you know, it was yeah. made over 21 years ago. Um, but there's also like, it's so crazy that George Clooney was the TV killer for years. Like he was the pilot murderer because he couldn't get anything on the air. Yeah. And the second he shows up, you're like, this is a movie star. He's a movie star. Yeah. <laughs> right out of the gate. Immediately it's a movie unbelievable. star. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Well, thank you so much for, for talking with me about everything under the sun. Uh, I look forward to talking again soon. And uh, yeah. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks for asking. So uh, that was my conversation with Liz Hanna about the season one finale. Uh, And now here is my interview with Paul Redford, writer, producer on the show, where we go into sort of the nitty gritty about what it was like making the West Wing. It was an absolute blast. And I'll also just say uh, thank you so much to all our listeners that have uh, come along on this ride as we talk about the West Wing. And obviously an enormous thank you to all our guests. Uh, So here's my interview with Paul Redford. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phyllis Gove. And with me today, I am very pleased to say, is Paul Redford, uh, writer-producer on The West Wing. Uh, in season one, he co-wrote The State Dinner, The White House Pro-Am, and Take the Sabbath, which he won a Humanitas uh, Award for. was nominated also for a WGA Award for that episode. Um, and in the second season, he co-wrote The Portland Trip, The Leadership Breakfast, and Somebody's Going to Emergency, Somebody's Going to Jail, which he was again nominated for a WGA award for, uh, and also co-wrote many episodes in season three, four, and five. Thank you so much for being here, Paul. I very much appreciate it. I very much appreciate <laughs> being here. It's so good to hear all the appreciation for West Wing. <laughs> I am, um, you know, as, as you very well know, I've been doing this mini-series uh, for a few months now, and I'm just thrilled to talk with someone that was there that was in the trenches that was uh so you know um a fundamental part of this process and you know i i it goes without saying that i'm sure our listeners um want to hear all about your journey um so let's kind of rewind for a second go back to 1999 <laughs> um i know it's a you know it was it's a little while ago now but um how did the west wing come into your life and 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 sort of what was that early days like uh, it came into my life through Aaron, Aaron Sorkin, mm-hmm. uh, who's uh, had nothing but a beneficial effect on my life and career. Sure. Uh, uh, that's um, I was writing in uh, uh, 98, 99. I was mm-hmm. uh, uh, one of a staff writer on Sports Night, which was his first television show and was kind of a. TV breakthrough in its own right, because it was, um, 
you know, that was the era when television was all, you know, fortunes were to be made and everybody was watching NBC on Thursday night and everyone was watching uh, the great multi-camera uh, sitcoms, half hours. Mm-hmm. That was the form. That was the dominant form in TV. Sure. Um, and that was where all the best writing was and where the best acting was. Um in my opinion, and I think in a lot of people's opinion, and also where an enormous audience was that we'll never see again. Um, Not that the West Wing didn't have an enormous audience because it very much The West Wing had an enormous audience, but we considered ourselves almost weirdly um, an underground kind of hit because we weren't getting the the enormous numbers of a a Seinfeld (laughs) or a a Friends or uh, an ER. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, Sports Night was ABC's attempt to kind of, you know, grab some of that NBC prestige money. (laughs) Sure, sure. Uh, It was a very smart, funny uh, uh, show, but it was also not written in the style of a multi-camera sitcom in that the jokes were all, were not kind of standalone jokes, kind of five Mm -hmm. per minute, which is really the structure of, even the best of the, you know, the multi-camera ones was much more character related, much more story related and filmed at a very fast pace uh, by Tommy Schlamy and written, you know, with Aaron's signature, um, uh, you know, he's, he's the Duke Ellington of dialogue. I mean, it was just, you know, his, his phenomenal sense of writing and, and, and writing for actors. So Mm -hmm. uh, that was a thrill for me because I was coming out of, um, uh, my, my last job before sports night was on coach, <laughs> which, uh, uh, I don't think was still on in 99. So it doesn't fall under the purview it was of not, the show, it was but not. it was, it was certainly in the line of classic, classic comedies, you know, along the line of, uh, created by all the, the people who did cheers and taxi and, mm-hmm. and, um, and I, I, a show I'm still very fond of and that launched a lot of great writing careers in comedy. Um, and I don't include myself because <laughs> sure, sure. I was just a beginner on coach and sports night to me was a wonderful transition to something with more decent hours. I mean, I was, uh, I had just married my wife, Nancy. We were trying to get a family and in those days writing comedy, if you were writing half hour comedy, it was perfectly standard to be there till, it wasn't funny till it was 3 a.m. and you were on your 15th version of a joke. Isn't um, anything funny at 3 a.m. though? I mean, that's real. <laughs> Everything's funny at 3 a.m., I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was tired of, you know, going out the studio gates just as everyone was arriving mm-hmm. for work. That was really my experience of writing half-hour comedy. Sports Night was much more civilized, partly because Aaron wrote so much of it. He really just needed us around, uh, the rest of the staff around, to you know, give him story ideas and, you know, the occasional jokes. But uh, he was really master of his domain in, in that whole area. Uh, and then while working on Sports Night, he, uh, um, Aaron called a bunch of us junior writers in and said, well, what do you think about Rob Lowe? And we said, what do you mean Rob Lowe? I mean, oh, because at that point, Rob, God yeah. bless him, was best known for a sex tape and, you know, a career that was kind of ended. Yeah. Um and we said, well, we don't know. And he said, well, you know, I've got this pilot, this political show. Uh, we're casting it. And, you know, kind of out of the blue, Rob Rob came in to read for a role. And 
Here's the thing. He's actually really good. <laughs> if we cast him, though, do you think it would, uh, you know, right. his reputation? Or so? Anyway, it was, it, was, it was a funny question. Where we all said, go ahead and cast him. And then, then I asked Aaron if I could, you know, look at the pilot. They had actually shot the pilot while we were doing uh, Sports Night mm-hmm. um, uh, with the same director, Tommy, who was, uh, who was working on with, with us on Sports Night. And I was just, I was astounded. I mean, I knew that, that Tommy and Aaron together were making great TV on Sports Night. But this was, and I told Aaron that, this is the best pilot I've ever seen of any TV show. Uh, and I know, you know, we're coming back for a second year on Sports Night. I know this is a little unusual, but, you know, if you need writers on West Wing, if the show right. goes... Uh, I would I would be thrilled because honestly I could already tell that West Wing was much as I like Sports Night West Wing was really the kind of show I I would have dreamed of writing at that point. Um, it, it does feel like um, you know Sports Night kind of you know it, it was it had a laugh track then it didn't have a laugh track it was a show that never fully totally hit to your point because it didn't sort of it didn't fall into the kind of uh, a friend's mold, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, West Wing is so fully formed from the jump. Like it's, it's, yes. there are a handful of pilots. Um, I'm sure, you know, we could name them, but shows that from the pilot, you know, just hit the ground running. Um, very few. I mean, very the, few. The, the one I always, always would think of in, in my field in comedy was Frazier. Frazier's right, 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 right. one show, but it's probably because they had developed those characters and that voice. Right, right. Through so many years of cheers. Normally, particularly in comedy, and but also in drama, you need a, you need a year to kind of find what the show is and who your characters are. And yeah. uh, with so many shows, you know, including the great Seinfeld and all that, True. you can... Everyone will tell you, you know, it's what everyone told you about Shit's Creek is like, <laughs> look, give, it the, a, give it a chance, yeah. you know, yeah. get through the first year. Get, it's always <laughs> or get through the first four episodes of anything. Well, the well, first four episodes of West Wing were, you know, they were the show fully formed. You know, well, this I think is, they were this is sort as of good as, you know, five years later. So, yeah. well, this speaks to um, to, to, to a difference back in the day to now, which is that you do have a fair amount, far more than ever before, series orders, right? Yes. Back in the day and still, you know, in broadcast television and some cable places, you write a pilot, you shoot a pilot, the pilot is screened for, for your various executives at the top of the network chain, and then they decide whether or not they're going to go to series with it. So you really have a gap there, right? I mean, you've right. got a, a couple months, and then you've got a gap of when your writer's room is breaking your season, writing your first couple episodes, in a vacuum before it even airs, right? So you guys are doing this on season one of West Wing, then the show premieres and you're seeing how the show is embraced, what things are working, what things perhaps aren't working as much. And I certainly need to ask your thoughts on Mandy, but I, I, I want to sort of, uh, and this is not a, no, nothing denigrating to, to, no, to no, not Gally, at all. Cause she I mean, seems lovely and, and, and wonderful, but and honestly, I, kinda, I, w- I was most excited about Maura Kelly on the show. I, didn't <laughs> sure. know, I knew Martin right. and I, I knew, I always knew John Spencer was a great actor, but I'd, I'd never seen the other guys. And right. Uh, I don't know. Cutting Edge is still one of my. It's great. It's, it's great. I love it. Favorite yeah. figure skating hockey, romantic. Hockey. Totally agree with you. 
Yeah. Um, and, and, and written by a, by a fellow Canadian. So there's that. Yes. Too. Um, so, yes. <laughs> uh, but I, but I do think that I kind of want to hone in on, cause this is a notoriously unorthodox writer's room in the sense of how yes. the episodes are broken, <laughs> how the episodes are written. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of want to just know what those first couple months were like as you sort of, as, as you and Aaron and the other writers kind of, found the show, figured out what the voice of the show was, and also worked within this unorthodox method of, of writing. <laughs> well, I think that goes to, um, and I don't know if your your larger themes of what 99, what mm-hmm. happened in 99, but 99 was also really, I think, the birth of whatever you're going to call it, auteur television, yes. of television with a, 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 you know, with a singular voice mm-hmm. that you, before this, only saw in feature films. Mm-hmm. So I think that was the strength of West Wing just coming out of the gate is it was it was an O-Tour TV show. Aaron was uh, I never saw him or heard him take a network or a studio note. <laughs> I never uh, a luxury. I, 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 I never even you know, he refused to even talk about upcoming episodes or how the season would go in front of executives. Uh, um, and he was so. I think supported and protected by his other two executive producers, John Wells, who is a genius of the medium and a genius, you know, showrunner producer, mm-hmm. uh, made sure everything is, was in place for Aaron to do what Aaron did. Uh, the only thing, com- the only writer I think comparable to Aaron, at least an hour before that, would have been David Kelly who did, uh, uh, you know, was able to sit down, and I know this from writers who worked on with him on their shows, um, could, could write a whole episode in, a, in, a, in an afternoon. Um, on paper. Aaron wasn't quite well, that online, fast. Yes, unlike yes, ruled paper. Yes, with it's his crazy. famous, yeah. you know, uh, 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 I think in pencil, and he had, a, there's only one secretary mm-hmm. or assistant in the world who could read his handwriting. Um <laughs> Aaron was uh, uh, Aaron. Aaron was comparable. I mean, it would take him longer, and Aaron really did for all his. He he was not uh, as much as I, I think you know, and I only know this by reputation. A, a recluse like Kelly, because Kelly shuts the door and writes everything. Aaron Aaron shuts the door, writes a scene, opens the door, runs into the writing room, says. What's next? <laughs> you know, okay. Um, okay. so uh, much like Bartlett. I mean, the relationship of Bartlett and the staff on the show is, you know, there's there's that's one model for it is Aaron's relationship to his own staff. Um, that's really interesting because a lot yeah. of people talk about um, Mad Men and how yes. uh, Matt Weiner really kind of looked at the ad world similarly to the writer's world, right? Like right, the right. way that Don talks to the various people that work with him is, I imagine, somewhat similar to the way Matt Weiner talks to his writers. I mean, certainly, you know, it's it's a drama of egos. It's a drama of uh, yeah. uh, um, uh, of ambition. And, and you know, it's a very strange thing for writers to write together. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for thousands of years, probably back to Homer, you know, it's the writer works alone. The right. actors and everybody else, that is the, that's the collaboration is once it gets to the set yep. or once it gets on stage. 
Well, but, you you mentioned yeah. um, something earlier that I, I wanted to to kind of um, underline and and ask you a question on, which is you know, Otter Television is is kind of being birthed at this moment, right? Like you right. guys are at the tip of the spear. You've mm-hmm. got uh, Sex and the City's in its second season. Sopranos premieres in January of '99. You guys premiere obviously in September of '99. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a writer back then, The Sopranos must have felt like an earthquake, right? Like. Wait, oh, we can tremendous. do we can do this now? <laughs> like that that's you know what I mean? Like that's a completely yeah. game-changing moment. And for you guys to be sort of, you know, for for lack of a better way of putting it, the standard bearers of broadcast television yeah. for the for the yeah. four years um that you won best drama and and it, it sort of what was that like to sort of feel that push and pull at that time? Did it feel as seismic as I imagine it must have? But I, uh, you know, Sopranos certainly felt seismic. We didn't feel seismic. We felt certainly that first year in '99, right. we kind of wondered, you know, who's watching um, <laughs> our number. You know, we were not a. You know, there were these shows that were massive hits out of the gate, like mm-hmm. ER. Mm-hmm. which was, uh, again, almost like fully formed. And that was, that mm-hmm. was John Wells's show before mm-hmm. West Wing. Um, and uh, later on, Desperate Housewives and Grey's Anatomy, they, they were, tr- you know, tremendous. And they were in the cultural conversation, like, right away. Mm-hmm. West Wing, it felt like, well, I we've, guess somebody's writing, uh, watching us. <laughs> but, uh, you know, all the critical and all, all the, the attention of, of all the, like, smart writers, it's all Sopranos. I mean, I, I do have this, this great memory of every Monday morning in the writer's room, the first hour or two would be a discussion of what was the on Sopranos the night before and how great Sopranos yeah. was. And we had to be very careful because if Aaron would come in and hear us, you know, <laughs> extolling Sopranos, it would drive him crazy. I'm sure. Like, I'm sure. I can understand. I mean, what was he paying us for? Do you know? Not to, you know, well, but it's, it's the Sopranos. Yeah, I mean, you guys are yeah. just doing something so drastically dissimilar, too, right? Like, yes, I, it, exactly. it's, it is interesting because exactly. um, I do feel like, and I and and I want to hone in uh, in a in a bit about take this Sabbath day because there's a moment in that episode that feels very Tony Soprano, um, which is the moment when Bartlett decides to let the guy die, yeah, and he just kind of nods to Leo yeah. and gives the signal like I'm not going to stay his execution. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a cold-blooded moment in a weird way from a character yeah. who's so open-hearted. Yeah. Um, you know, this is this is very much an episode, not to get heavy, but I, I do think the parallels with The Sopranos were interesting in that particular episode yeah. because, I mean, for all intents and purposes, Bartlett is your Tony Soprano. Uh, he's uh-huh. your central character. You know what I mean? Everything kind of revolves around him. Um, and he's, he's such a giving intellect. He's the, he's the antithesis of Tony Soprano in so many ways. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then in that moment to see him, um, essentially put a hit on a person, right? Like it's, it's a, it's a very different right situation, yeah. but it, it does feel, what, what was it like writing that particular episode, which, you know, is, is very, obviously, you know, it deals with the death penalty, which is a big issue, obviously. Yeah. Um, it's dealt with in a very, um, I thought a very interesting way coming at it through the, the idea of religion um, and, and Martin Sheen and, and, and Bartlett both being religious men. Um, you know, how did you, how was that episode broken? Did you guys, you know, was it a, a thematic thing? Did you come at it from theme and idea first or how did it work? Well, it was, uh, um, 
at, at that point, you know, we were still feeling our way about how we were going to write these episodes and construct them. Sure. Um, we, you know, by year two and when Kevin Falls came in and started running the room, I think we were, uh, in, in year two kind of established the working relationship between the writer's mm-hmm. staff and, and, and Aaron, um, year one, it was really catch as catch can. And, and John <laughs> Wells, who is, you know, like I said, the most experienced showrunner, he was trying to find a way to use the, the staff uh, uh, and and have them relate to Aaron in an optimum way. John's initial plan was, well, look, since Aaron's not going to sit still for, <laughs> you know, the, the usual kind of breaking a story and putting an outline on the board and running it by studio and getting notes on the outline and all that, Aaron sits down and writes. So, but Aaron needs, you know, it, it needs, needs something to write about. Aaron needs story. Aaron needs something to rewrite. Aaron needs something to respond to. So initially, John told all of us, well, then just write a script, a West Wing script on your own with what you know so far about the show and the characters. And weirdly, don't run any of it by Aaron because he just doesn't have the bandwidth right now. He's always writing, you know, the, the next script. So um, I had already had a, 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 a you know, I was already friends with Lawrence O'Donnell. We knew each other. Um, Lawrence was a legend on the Harvard Lampoon when I was writing on the Harvard Lampoon. Um, uh, uh, Lawrence, you could do a whole show about Lawrence too. I mean, <laughs> uh, and Lawrence and Pat Cadell were both hired um, as kind of consultants on the show. Lawrence, among as many other credits, had been uh, chief of staff to Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who I think is still Lawrence, one of the few sort of real life heroes Lawrence has. He's, <laughs> you know, he's, he, he's deeply dubious about uh, everybody else's heroes, but uh, he has a few of his own. Um, and so Lawrence brought this wonderful perspective. And Lawrence was also, you know, raised in South Boston, you know, good Catholic uh, Boston boy. So his background was a little bit closer to Bartlett's than certainly me, you know, this half Mennonite from uh, the Midwest. Um so uh, I, I, I was assigned, and Lawrence and I were assigned to not so much write a script, but, but do a story. Tommy Schlamy was very intent that you guys are good at story. Give Aaron a good, good story for, uh, you know, the next script and, and write an outline for it. And I came to Lawrence and said, you know, and it was kind of the dumbest idea. I just said, we just need, you know, a how about a, a, a 24-hour thing where Bartlett has to make a decision and there's a timeline on it. And, you know, that automatically gives you a good structure. And Lawrence was the one who came up with, well, you know, there hasn't been a federal execution uh, uh, um, for, at that point, it was almost 10 years. He said the Bartlett, Bartlett would have to be one of the first to sign a federal death warrant since the Supreme Court, you know, once again, you know, legalized capital punishment at the federal level. Um, and we said, great. And it was also something that we were both very passionate about. And uh, I was uh, uh, working with my uh, old writing partner, Ed Redlick, on a, an organization called Death Penalty Focus, which is devoted to abolishing the death penalty. So I was very versed in the arguments against it, uh, as was Lawrence. But Lawrence had had the argument that was most interesting to Aaron, which is, well, you know, the Catholic church, everyone, (laughs) everyone pays attention to their position on abortion. No politician acknowledges their position on the death penalty. They are just as opposed to the death penalty as they are to abortion. 
And that really caught Aaron's attention. And I think, you know, I, I don't remember how much he actually used of our outline, but what I think he really used was the passion both of us brought to this particular issue. You know, um, you know, me with my experience with the death penalty opponents, Lawrence with his own experience with, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the Catholic position on it and the arguments, you know, it's, it's very hard to come up with a coherent argument for the death penalty, I find, other than a visceral, <laughs> yeah, so. other than vengeance, you know, it's just a visceral thing that, look, if, you're, if your kid was killed by an evil person, that person should be killed in turn. But I'll um, say this, to that, to that point, you guys do an amazing job in, in, in very little time. The Charlie argument is a strong one. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bartlett basically says to him, you know, uh, would you want to see the guy that killed your mom executed? And he's like, no, I'd like to I, I would want to do it myself. Yeah. Um, and and it's powerful. It's it's incredibly um, effective in the sense yeah. that you don't need anyone else in that episode really giving you a counter argument to it. Yep. Yep. Because, first of all, everybody loves Charlie and Dulé Hill is tremendous. And yeah. it's a beautiful line reading. Mm-hmm. But it's also just like, that's the argument, right? Like, that's I the know. counter argument. It's, and that's the one that's, that's kind of, you know, it's, yeah. you know, it, it's where reason fails. It's, it's yeah. like, it's, it's, this, it's this sort of visceral at the level of yeah. fundamental belief. Yeah. Which you get in politics. You know, there's just people fundamentally, you know, think differently. Um, so here's a, here's another question yeah. for you on this, uh, and and this does fold into what we're with. Take the Sabbath day. The show does a tremendous job of finding a way to not be politically alienating, to not to to, to I think anyway. I mean, people on the right might say otherwise, but I do feel as though the show tries to be to some degree or another balanced. Right? Aaron loves an argument. If nothing else, he loves an argument. He loves a balanced mm-hmm. argument. He loves two smart people debating something right and um so the show does a really good job at that it's also quite educational i mean there are a lot of people that watch the show and learned a lot about civil service civic service civic mm-hmm. duty all this sort of stuff that comes into politics and and why we all hope people are in politics mm-hmm. but i guess my question to you is you know, when you guys are are thinking about this stuff and delineating this information and trying to put it in the in the mouths of your actors, how do you find that balance? How do you make it not feel preachy? How do you make it feel balanced and and also educational at the same time? Um, I think well, you you put your finger on it because Aaron would always you know his instruction to us the writers is just give me an argument, just give me <laughs> a good <laughs> argument, and I can I can write a scene. Right, but you know. Working with him for so long, I also see that it goes further than that. He he wants to hear. So our job was really to you know, as passionately <laughs> and as as wholeheartedly as we could argue both sides, whatever mm-hmm. side we wanted to take. Mm-hmm. You know, we wouldn't want to think up phony arguments for the other side. And I think actually the show got even better in in years two and three when Dee Dee Myers started introducing um, more conservative uh, uh, consultants. Uh, who, you know, and, and, and not bomb throwers and not idiots, <laughs> but guys who could very articulately express yeah. why they thought something and, mm-hmm. uh, or why, you know, someone in, in the opposite party would do this and would take a principal stand and it wasn't cynical. Um, 
But Aaron would always go further and look for that surprise. So mm-hmm. all these debates, as good as they are, they always, you know, it's, it's, he makes it a scene because it's not just, uh, uh, you know, a left, right and center. And, and here's, you know, that you can get on, on any cable channel. Uh, except yeah. Fox, <laughs> but uh, he he wants that, but he also wants the surprising, the emotional, the personal turn in the scene, mm-hmm. where we find out, you know, about Charlie's mother, where we find out, you know, where it. it so the, I mean, the great thing about the West Wing, and it's like which it truly did appeal to everybody, is it's it's always about when the pers- political becomes personal, right. Right. When it when it's it's your we made the show because we didn't need to make a news program. We didn't need to make something to compete with the other debates on television, which were you know that was the big you know this was the dawn of cable news and twenty four seven and too much you know mm-hmm. debate, too much argument, too much polarization. Um, we were always interested in no what does it what does it do to the to the people. And why are the people doing it? And, um, you know, Aaron will be the first to admit he's very bad at writing bad guys because his bad guys always <laughs> wind up. <laughs> you know, he becomes sure. much more interested in that moment when the bad guy surprises you yeah. by coming out with something that you go, oh, <laughs> well, you're that's, not so that's bad kind of- after all. Or, or, you know, we secretly agree or, or, or the moment, like you say, the Tony Soprano moment, when you're expecting this to be, you know, a, a wonderful civics lesson on the evils of the death penalty. Yeah. And Bartlett just doesn't. Yeah. And you realize, yeah, the, the personal cost to someone in the White House is you will be responsible. Your job is, is uniquely as president is you are responsible for who lives and dies. And well, it's, you have it's, to take that on. And that's what the whole episode really is about. It's not so much about pro or con death penalty. It's about the cost and the stakes to the, to the person who ultimately has to make that decision. Well, that's that's yeah. sort of. I mean, it, it's a very powerful episode for a bunch of reasons. And but but I would say that uh, you really feel the weight that Martin Sheen brings to it as well. I mean, there's something very sort of um, incredibly powerful about this idea that you're looking for catharsis. It, yeah. You know, you're looking for Bartlett to say yes, yes. You know. I'm going to say this guy's execution. He doesn't do that. And the catharsis, if there, if there is any, is in him speaking to his priest and confessing his sins yeah. and essentially kneeling, I mean, definitely you know, kneeling in the Oval Office and feeling the weight of that decision that he's made. Um, it's, it's incredibly powerful. It's, 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 it's amazing television. I would also say, too, it taps a little bit into... And I, I'm curious as to whether or not this affected the writers in any way. But Aaron Sorkin has obviously come from theater. Um, there is there is a theatrical quality to everything that he writes to some degree or another. Mm-hmm. There's even hints of magic realism at times. This idea of of something larger than us, right? Uh-huh. Um, and and in this episode, that manifests itself through religion, obviously, and that idea of uh, a higher power um, and and that sort of theatricality, if you will, of um, of just the idea of two people in a scene. I mean, he loves just two 
people, right? Like two people on a stage. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so that scene with the priest and Bartlett in the Oval Office um, with these beautiful godlike crane shots above them mm-hmm. and this sort of theatrical quality, are you guys thinking about that as you're, as you're writing? Are you thinking about how he's going to... Essentially, are you teeing him up in some way to do these type of things? Or is this something he brings on his own? Uh, this is it's very much what Aaron brings on okay. his own. But uh, we're very happy to tee, tee it up. <laughs> sure, sure. Like I said, the, the, the thing that he ultimately respected, and I think the, the, the writers who, who stuck around or, or you know, had some sense, mm-hmm. because it was a very difficult show to write. And it was very difficult to park your own ego. Uh, sure. Um, uh, but that's really what the job was. But if you could um, just just really bring everything you've got and put it on the table about an argument, about something, he would respect that. And, and, you know, he would use that clinically for, you know, dramatic purposes. So, um, you know, Aaron has no experience being a Catholic, but I think just him listening to Lawrence and Lawrence's own kind of Jesuitical upbringing and everything that, uh, uh, that he brought to it. Yeah. He could immediately put that into Bartlett and Bartlett's experience. So I have sort of two yeah. macro questions for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first is Mandy. So I, I, because I, I, this is, I, 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 I want to kind of, because I do feel like there's stuff that's, that's evident just from what we saw of her character. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, also kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier, which is stuff that happens as a show progresses, right? Right. You cast, you cast a character, you cast a role, you build this role to be a foil or a love interest for Josh, Mm -hmm. um, you know, an an, an ex lover, also something Aaron Sorkin uh, uh, goes back to from time to time. Um, (laughs) But you bring her in as this sort of spark plug character, Moira does a great job and then it oh. becomes abundantly clear that she just doesn't fit, right? Like yeah. within the administration, the role she plays, the job she has just doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not a reflection of Moira's performance in any way, but at at a certain point, did you guys start to, when did it become evident that Mandy might not belong for this world? I guess. Well, sort of what you I'm know, it, it wasn't evident you know, the, so much of the show was in formation, you right, know, right. by that first year. Um, and y- you almost, and, you know, and, and, and John Wells is very helpful in this too. You, you have to be um, in television, particularly yeah. when you're writing it on the run, when you're kind of rebuilding the engine at 90 miles an hour, all the time in television, <laughs> You have to be very open to what's working and what isn't and do not, you know, be so committed to what you thought the show was or who you thought these characters were. You have to be in this constant feedback loop to what's going on on the set, what's going on in the editing room. Um, So we and the writers were, you know, we were like a few steps removed from that immediate experience because we couldn't be in the editing room. We were coming up with the next episode. We could we you know, we we would see the episodes long after you know the producers had had yeah. gone over them and and decided about them, but it just became clear at a at a story level, 
uh, the just the character was not that useful because everybody else was deeply involved in policy making and making government and making government decisions. Did we lose? And well? you know, an outside consultant is actually you know, Mandy would have been great if we had been telling a campaign story. I think we figured that out. And that's actually, you know, in the last seasons of the show, it became about a, a presidential campaign, you know, which is, which is in a, in a way to me is a much more sort of in er- most political movies are about political campaigns of who's winning and who's losing and the polls and all that. And in that, a Mandy character would have been central to a primary colors or something like that. Sure. sure. But here she's just kind of there to, you know to either get it wrong or get it right, but on a purely PR level. And the show isn't about, you know, image. The show is about what's going on behind the image. So she also, she also hurt yeah. you guys on, on a, on a, um, she was a naysayer, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Part of, yeah. Part of what, what's, what's wonderful about the show mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes is, uh, is that these characters are barreling forward with the best of intentions, right? right. We're, we, we really want to change the system. We really want to make the country a better place. And then you had Mandy being like, uh-uh-uh. And it's right. just like, it's, and, and, and I imagine that that roadblock, it, it makes her, I mean, it, I, I think that it was just difficult. And you could sense that there was, that she was hurting momentum at times that she was yeah, slowing it's down. Also, it's just, it's in, in the West wing world, you, you love these people because they do stand for something. They passionately yes. want to do something. Yes. An outside character who's interested in image. That's a satirical character. That's a, that's right. sort of a, for a, a black comedy. And, mm-hmm. and, and honestly, you know, being experienced with so much political, it, it very rarely works. I can't Im- I, I, you know, people are always trying it and writers are always, cause writers love to write about writing and image and, you know, lying and all this. It, they always, those, those kind of satires, they, they kind of be, wind up being toothless to me because they're I never agree. smart enough. They're never really getting at, and they never really get, and you know, cynicism to me is kind of childish in politics. That's what my real discovery of the West Wing. Well, that's, fact, it's the, interesting the, you, you, yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because yeah. I, I, so rewatching this show and, and, and I've been, I, I rewatched Ted Lasso before season two started. Um, and I've been watching some Friday Night Lights and what have you. Uh, I, I've, I've, cynicism is easy. I feel like exactly. there's a jadedness yeah. to it. It takes courage to write characters that are willing to be so open hearted and, 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 right. and, um, and selfless to a certain degree, we should be making more television about trying to be the best of ourselves, not the worst of ourselves. Um, and and I think that's one of the reasons why this show holds up and why this show is so rewatchable and why this show was a bomb for so many people uh, over the last uh, four years or so. Um, it, 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 it fills you with hope. Yeah. Um, and, and the idea that that is uh, sentimental, I think, is a problem in a bigger, bigger sense. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I want to kind of... Uh, yeah, I, I, that that yeah. really, you know, th- th- that hits it. And, you know, I think West Wing is sometimes held up as like, oh, it was some kind of last gasp or it was a, it was a, mm-hmm. it was a holdover from a, a more sentimental era of television. And mm-hmm. here come the anti-heroes and here come Sopranos and Breaking Bad and, and Mad Men and all that. But um, I don't see it as that really at all. I think... Yeah. 
for for one thing, I don't think Sopranos and Breaking Bad and Mad Men are cynical in a way that their imitators try to be, because cynical is very predictable. Cynical gets very boring because you know you already know the yeah. motives of the characters are bad, and you just expect them to you know do bad things. It's much more interesting when you have you know this family man trying to hold it together, and he also has to whack some people. It's much more interesting <laughs> that you have these these idealists who are genuinely idealistic at the same time they're very smart they're very uh you know they can deliver one liners with the best of them um i mean that's that's the wonderful thing to me about aaron's writing is is that balancing act of yeah. wide eyed but clear eyed you know yeah. um 100% yeah. he kept telling us you know Always, and I think this was a little bit of a flaw of season five, honestly, which I, I stayed around for after Aaron and, and Tommy left, is, is season five, oh, now we get to do the, 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 the team kind of turning on each other and fighting each other and all the, you know, drama is conflict. Let's have our guys conflicted about whether they want to do this job and all that. Aaron would always say, why do you want to watch a show about people who, who don't want to be where they are? Why well, it's, would you want to yeah. watch a show about people who... You know, these, these guys have the best job in the world. Why? I don't want to see their, their doubts about it or their problems with it. Well, it's funny you say that because yeah. I think one of the things that – I think Aaron has said this in interviews and, and one of the things that I truly love about his shows um, is a sense of camaraderie. The yes. idea of a group of people working towards a common goal. I mean, the reason that he – one of the reasons that I think he loves writing behind-the-scenes things so much mm-hmm. is because you're seeing all of these people working together. They all love a thing and they all want to make a thing together. It's very similar to obviously making a television show. He's made two shows about making a television show. I mean, if you count news. Yeah. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's, but, but I think there's something I, I and I couldn't agree with him more. I love being on set. I love sitting around and watching us hundreds of people coming together to make a thing is just really special. Um, And to your point, you know, with season five, uh, you get that feeling that they think conflict is better television than people working together, which is an unfortunate uh, choice, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, so I, I, the show very much, by the way, you know, uh, 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 the show very much corrected itself. And I, I can't take credit for I, I think the last seasons of The West Wing was superb. And, I agree. I think six and seven are, fan, are fantastic. Of, you know, yeah. my friends who did stay around yeah. and get to carry that through. Yeah. So uh, I, I have two other questions for you. The, the first is about um, character centric episodes. Uh, somebody's going to, to emergency. Yeah. Somebody's going to jail is a Sam centric episode where we, where it's really kind of about him, uh, dealing with his, <laughs> with his issues with his father, uh, yeah. and, 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 and what's sort of going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this show, uh, very beautifully does character centric episodes. Um, when you were doing that episode or, or quite frankly, any of your episodes, did you find yourself sort of, is it different writing for different characters or was it just sort of, did you have to get yourself into a Toby headset to do a Toby centric episode or a Sam centric episode? Did, did it, was it, was it in any way well, different? You know, we, the, the, the writers, um, the rest of the writing staff, we would be responsible for individual sort of storylines. Mm-hmm. Um, and Aaron would, uh, you know, put it all together and, you know, Aaron, 
you know, 50% of the stories uh, uh, in every episode would come out of Aaron's head at least. Right. Um, right. But uh, we, we did learn that, you know, there were, if you would always start with, okay, he needs a story. We need an issue. We need something. And then the next step was like, okay, that's working. Whose story should it be? And it became, you know, on just a, you know, mechanical level, you know, Josh was more responsible for policy than CJ was, at least in the right. early days. CJ would, you know, CJ was in her own kind of silo of all the media related stories, which, by the way, I think is a reason she supplanted Mandy and, you know, kept, you know, <laughs> feeding out of Mandy's puppy dish the, yeah. in, in the in the first season, because all those stories were like better for the press secretary. Um, yeah. uh, and uh so, and, and Toby honestly was the one I had the most fun writing for because I think Toby is the, the slightly misanthropic, uh, you know, as a writer. I mean, Toby of all of them, you know, could have been a TV writer very easily. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sam and Josh were just too extroverted and too handsome and, you know. <laughs> so my, um, my, yeah, so please, please go ahead. Sorry, yeah, and then, and then, uh, you know, there was always the A story, which is, you know, my joke is is every episode, you know, cops, it's always about shooting somebody and lawyers, it's about getting someone, you know, change. They're all, all shows are life and death. The, the All good dramas are life and death. Yeah. West Wing was all about getting the president to sign something. That was the <laughs> ultimate <laughs> objective of every episode is yeah. you gotta get, get the guy's signature on something. Um, but that was life changing and it's, you know, in, in, in the biggest sense. Um, so it's always like, well, what is sort of the big, uh, uh, Bartlett moment, Oval Office moment. And we were smart enough not to do that every episode. I mean, like you said, the character, I like the episode, like someone's going mm-hmm. to emergency did, uh, um, though I think I originally pitched that thinking it would be a Josh episode. Because it was, um, Josh is so much um, the, uh, uh, like a lot of ardent liberals I know and knew mm. um, would idealize. And, uh, you know, it's all based on, it's it's kind of beat for beat based on the actual Alger Hiss story of a man mm. who was taken down um, as a traitor uh, and idolized and idealized by the left. And it's only recently that... Uh, we recognize the truth. Um, in fact, I got a heartbreaking letter from, <laughs> uh, I think Alger Hiss's granddaughter about mm. really, how could you, <laughs> uh, cause she knew, uh, mm. what the story was based on, but that to me is what made it such a great drama. And I, I think it was almost at that point, Aaron realized he had been maybe giving a little too much to Brad Gosh, and shortchanging, sure. uh, 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 um, Rob, Rob, uh, I found this in his, his other writing. He, he, he loves all his actors equally, but <laughs> you know, there, there will always be the actor who is kind of the, the, the glamor puss in the show and that everyone else thinks is a little bit of the light weight. Um, I, I'm, I'm remembering newsroom. Uh, uh, <laughs> she's wonderful. Um, now of course I'm having a senior moment. I can't remember her name now, but, uh, Olivia Munn, or? Olivia Munn. You know, she was this pinup girl. How you're not going to give a good story to Olivia Munn, and Aaron, God bless him, found out she could actually speak Japanese. 
So well, I'm going to write her a story. We're going to do the Fukuya, uh, Fukushima episode. And she just, she just stunned us. Cause I, I don't know. I don't know if you're, she turned into one of the best, one of the best characters on the show. She became one of the best characters on the show in the same way that Sam, you know, it goes back to that meeting at sports night. Well, what do you think of uh, Rob Lowe? (laughs) Rob Lowe has so many crayons in the box. Rob Lowe can do so much, including that drama. I mean, that scene when he's just throwing the sugar packets, I think that must've been improv on the set just into that, that metal basin or something. And so, you know, um, I'm going to go tell her. I'm going to go tell her. And then he runs upstairs. And that's only because we, at that point, had built a staircase set. <laughs> it's so a we great had a lower story. level on the West Wing for the first time. That Tommy used that to make that very dramatic. Yeah. And then, you know, he can't tell her the truth. It's I'm going to uh, tell this girl who her father really was. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, really it's, was. Yeah. it's amazing stuff. I, I, I want to kind of, um, I, I have one last question for you that kind of feeds into a newsroom question. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to ask what it was like on the West Wing um, after 9-11. It was oh. obviously a, 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 a I mean, a, a, a horrific event that we're still, quite frankly, living in the fallout of. Yeah. And uh, it did change everything. I, yeah. It changed everything, right? You guys yeah. are, I'm including assuming. Including politics, including, I mean, 9-11 right? is the reason we'll never be able to do another West Wing. Right. Yeah. So I, I, my question is sort of, you know, from a production perspective, you guys are already, you know, producing episodes oh, yeah. for, for season three. We were, um, we, had, our, our, we were halfway through the script of the Halloween episode. Right. So you guys are pretty yeah. deep into season yeah. three at this oh, yeah. point. Yeah. And this, this horrible thing happens. Um, and Aaron decides to write this, this standalone episode, the Isaac and Ishmael episode that airs before the premiere. Um, understandably he he feels like he has to somehow um you know acknowledge this this horrible thing that's happened within the universe of his show Mm -hmm. um my question is sort of more macro as to um what was it like trying to write this show in a world that had so drastically changed did you did you find that the show i mean Season three ends with Bartley killing a, a, a terrorist, for for right. lack of a better way of putting it. No. Um, did the show change? Did you did you feel like it changed? Did the Bartlett administration change because of well, that? In a funny way, I, I, I mean, obviously things radically changed the day of, and we were yeah. shut down, and you know, uh, even arriving for work at the studio, and I don't know when we were first kind of allowed back in the studio, but. We were all under high alert and right. there were the German shepherds and the guys with mirrors running them under the chassis of your yeah. car. And, and um, yeah. I, I, I think we're all still kind of PTSD if you've lived yeah. through that. It's yeah. very hard to remember just how bizarre and how yeah. sort of stomach in your throat you went through your days for weeks afterwards. But in a funny way, and what I think people also forgetting, and this is before Iraq and Afghanistan and WMDs yeah. and big lies, that it was a kind of shining moment for the presidency, for the White House. It was truly a crisis presidency. It was, yeah. uh, you know, looking back, and I'm now, you know, kind of immersing myself in the lead up to Iraq kind of trying to understand that um, they were actually all 
doing their best. Everyone, you know, even the ones we regard now as villains, were certainly trying to do the right thing at every minute and for the highest possible stakes. So in a weird way, it was a fulfillment of what the show had started doing. You know, I mean, um, and then, uh, you know, it, it did introduce a darkness into the show, which I think only helped it. I mean, Bartlett's own sort of big lie about the MS, um, which had begun in season one with the state dinner episode. Mm -hmm. Um, so I take a little credit. <laughs> I think, no, I mean I—that's one of my favorite I, I actually scenes. Pitched the yeah. story. To, I pitched the story to to Aaron while he was rewriting State Dinner. Well, you know, Best Truman always hated the White House, and Best Truman made Harry promise that he wouldn't run for a second term. And Aaron went, ah, because <laughs> <laughs> now he had the great scene with him right. with you know Martin and Stark at Channing. I'm sitting here eating a sandwich. Um, and uh, 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 so thank you, Best Truman. Um, and, but then the darkness of the MS and then the real darkness, uh, and I think, I don't know if Lawrence was still around, but I know I became very immersed cause I'm always such a thriller fan mm. in the role of, you know, the Pakistani intelligence services, mm-hmm. uh, in aiding and abetting our enemies, even while we're supporting their government. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a tremendously paradoxical, yeah. dramatic and I think actually the writers still give me credit for naming Kumar, <laughs> the country. Oh yes, this is this was my little weird celebrity in in West Wing. Is is I'm responsible for the names of all, I think all the fictional countries. Uh, the, the, that's cool. The, the Central Equatorial Republic of Kundun. Kundun. In Africa, that's me. Kumar is me. I think there's a few. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, I, I think that it's really, you know, I, the show very deftly you know, navigates some pretty choppy waters in terms of what the world was like after this horrific event um, and not losing its sense of, of potential and hope and, and, and what can be achieved by government. Um, And, and I I think that that's really important. I, I, the the reason I asked you the question really was just because it does feel like um, it's, it's, it's a real kind of fork in the road thing, right? I mean, yeah. I, 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 if I, if I was gun to my head, was forced to pick a favorite season, I would probably say season two, um, yeah. because the season two feels like the yeah. show really at the peak of its powers. It understands itself. Um, it beautifully comes back on itself. I mean, the, the 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 finale and the premieres are so such lovely bookmarks. It just really feels like a wonderful season of television. Um, and it's not to take anything away from seasons, seasons three and four, but you certainly feel like the show's changed a little bit um, and that the world's changed a little bit. And, and, it, and you do feel that um, it's not necessarily for the worst, but I just wanted to sort of hone in on whether or not um, it changed the way you guys made the show. Um. N- other than, well, as you said, I think we really hit our stride as, as you know, a functioning show in a functioning writer's room mm-hmm. uh, in season two. And really, we could have, I think the show just based on, on what could have gone for a full, you know, full seven years, ten years with Aaron yeah. at the helm. Um, based on that model. But things did change and... 
you know, there was just the stress of making 22 of them. You know, I think in in today's kind of streaming cable environment, (laughs) if you only had to, you know, newsroom to me, it it was a dream working on the, you know, season one of the newsroom because we only had to do what, nine of them, (laughs) you know, and every script was in on time. You know, we got (laughs) a chance to even revise the scripts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. (laughs) You know, and HBO, of course... HBO treats you like kings. It's like <laughs> yeah, budgets, you know, I yeah, imagine are, budgets, are just, you can whoa, do whatever you want. Yeah. You know, um, well, that you bring up newsroom and I, I wanted to ask that I wanted to ask about that because I, I in terms of the choice mm-hmm. to use real events. Yes. Um, which is a, a choice. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I, you yeah. know, honestly, for the first, Aaron, Aaron pitched me the show and, and two other, uh, uh, you know, friends from the old West Wing days, uh, uh, Eli Addy and Kevin Falls. Mm-hmm. I remember Aaron inviting us all to dinner and saying, well, what do you think of this? And he started describing, you know, his, his latest foray into TV. And we said, well, that all sounds tremendous. He said, yeah, but what am I going to do? I mean, I've got to, do I make up headlines? Do I make up news? Um, and they said, well, I wish we could help. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, and, he, and I remember him saying, I'll pay any amount of money, you guys. Just just, yeah. just come on board and help me out. And uh, yeah. Eli and Kevin were both, I think, uh, They're like, already <laughs> deeply involved. No, they, they had other shows and they were committed yeah, yeah, to, yeah. I think. You know, Kevin's always doing some great show. And Eli, I think, was, was uh, you know, tied to house at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, or one of them. Um, and I was Twix Picks, as we say in Hollywood. So they turned to me after Aaron Lett said, you should do it. You should do it. I said, <laughs> what is this? But the call came and Aaron yeah. showed me the pilot. And I thought, oh, that's, that's great. He said, yeah, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do the headlines from a year ago. We're going to be this, this weird historical drama. Yeah. <laughs> but the history is only one year old. Right. So, okay. 
And, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're getting off 1999 now into, into the future. But no, we, I, I, yeah. th- that we had the most fun, you know, just doing this whole timeline that ran the right, right under the ceiling of the writer's room about all the events of a year ago and which headlines, which news stories we're going to do. And I think we did, you know, a reasonably good job. It, it, but it was such a rebus, such a Rubik's Cube trying to fit that the actual news stories into again making the the uh, 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 the journalistic poli- personal. Um, how do we make fit this into the personal stories of this, you know, struggling newsroom that's reinventing itself? It just became a very very tall order. And it's, I it's, think yeah, yeah there's and, also and an it, element. Sorry, yeah. Oh, please, please, yeah, yeah. Well, as I think what it as it went on, it became very clear that. You know, the news stories, it was just too hard to have every week centered on a different actual headline. There's also a a, a, a tension that's lost a little bit Mm -hmm. when you know how it plays out, right? Exactly. Exactly. There's no... It's it's to me it's the problem with all sports shows, too. Though uh, Sports and I solved it by making it again about sports media. Mm -hmm. But making a show uh, that's a drama about sports, and I think Ted Lasso solves it because it's a comedy about sports... Yeah. Um, but a drama about sports, you're taking away the inerrant dramatic thing of how's it going to turn out, you know, well, and it's like, that's Friday yeah. night lights and it's all about family and all that. But right. if it's, if it's, if it's always about the big game and it's, it's always like, well, are they going to win? Are they going to lose? Um, <laughs> West wing, you know, in contrast to newsroom, you know, West wing, you know, we had a much bigger field to play in. We, we, of course we used headlines. We used every single significant, policy and story that had happened to the white house but for the last 20 or 30 years i mean we were doing things that you know jfk had to deal with you know uh as well as you know gays in the military or whatever was much more current um but we tried to do like perennial presidential problems as much as we could uh which is why it's interesting still holds up yeah yeah, I mean, I agree with you that that the the sports analogy is an interesting one. I remember I saw a panel once of some Parenthood writers who were also on Friday Night Lights, and and I think about a season into Parenthood, they were just like, "We'll give anything for a football game." I mean, anything, just give us something <laughs> uh, to you know to to hold on to. So I, I it's it's a curse and a blessing, right? Like the, the, yeah. it's, it's a double edged sword when it comes to working within a formula in any way, really, right? Because at a certain point, it can feel repetitive, or it can be just hard to crack every week. Right. And and how much does your drama need to overlap with yeah. real life and how much does it preempt it mm-hmm. and how much are you just redundant? I mean, I, I think a basic problem with, you know, every other political show besides the West Wing is, well, wait a minute, the real politics are much more interesting than this. And a well, news yeah. show is a real problem because, wait, there's the real news. And, and mm-hmm. you're not reporting anything different about the midterm election <laughs> you're just kind of yeah. giving a harangue about the midterm election and the rise of the tea party okay well yeah. you know you can read about the rise of the tea party in wikipedia you we, we can't tell people anything they don't know about the rise of the tea party whereas we can tell people a lot about what they don't know about what goes into a decision uh, mm-hmm. you know to assassinate a foreign leader and and uh or to or what goes into the U.S. Census or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, we made a point in the West Wing, and Aaron laid this out early on, and I think we really respected it, is every episode we have to tell 
the, our audience something about the White House, which they didn't know. And like you do the famous Lincoln bust, which is now, uh, you know, I don't know where that came from. I don't even know if it's true. But the fact that, that <laughs> the Lincoln bust will always be angled, depending, yeah. you know, to give a, yeah. a code word about the president's mood. I think that may have been from the Clinton administration <laughs> or it's just a myth. It's a good story anyway. Uh, I think it's interesting <laughs> what you're saying in terms of um, how hard it is to make a West Wing or a newsroom uh, today. Because I do think that, I mean... Uh, Politics and the news have been perverted and and sort of mutated in such a way, especially uh, over the Trump administration, that I think it's just so hard for us to put any credibility in these things, right? Like, you know, the the hardest thing Joe Biden has to do in this administration is bring back credibility and trust to... Uh, something that we never thought could be tarnished in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, forget about what Newsmax and Fox News and various, you know, uh, far-right organizations are doing to the idea of, of, of truth and yeah. what that means. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's shocking, um, but it's part of why I think the show was not just brilliant, but it's important. I mean, it's, it's a document of something. And, and it's, you know, a lot of people, I had, I had Alan Seppenwall and Emily Vanderwerf on for the pilot of this show for an episode oh. where I talked about the pilot. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, Emily is, is, ha- has very interesting thoughts about the, the ramifications of this show in terms of the expectations of politics. The yeah. idea that people watch the show and think, oh, well, that's the way it should be. But is it even possible, quote unquote, for it to do that? Right. I mean, was Obama, um, you know, given an, a, a bar that was just not possible to hit because of a show like this? Right. And it's possible that that's true. Um and I don't hold that against the show. I hold that against the American people. But well, yeah. but I do, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I'm just sort of wondering what your thoughts are on on its legacy and and what it's like to watch the show through a 2021 lens now. Um, I think its legacy is is uh, well. I have to say this, but I do think it's positive. <laughs> I mean, I'm yeah. very proud of it. Sure, sure. I do, as have, you should be. You know, a, a personal experience of a few years ago of going. It, it was the. Um, I think of the last months of the Obama administration of going to Washington on behalf of a, a group lobbying for um, uh, 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 intellectual property rights uh, uh, and against piracy. And uh, the, the host sort of mentioned in passing, Oh, would you like to drop in on the, on the, uh, the speech writing shop at the, at the West wing? Cause uh, they'd all love to talk to you. I said, okay. Uh, and it wasn't in the West Wing, of course, it was in the old executive office building, but it was virtually the West right. Wing. They were all, they all looked 12 years old to me. They were all in their 20s. <laughs> and I, I come in and they had all gathered together because, you know, they were, they were a bit at loose ends for the first time because everything was winding down. And I guess I had interrupted a discussion about whether Donna was actually a good secretary or not. <laughs> <laughs> Donna actually a good assistant because they had all like mm-hmm. memorized every episode yeah. and they were all very upfront as yeah, we're doing this because of the West Wing. Yeah. This is, this set our aspirations. And I looked around, yeah. <laughs> I get it. And these are, you know, and of course I, I hope some of them went into television because all of them were very eager to, because you know, <laughs> what are you going to do if you're yeah. in your twenties, you have the coolest job in the world. I guess you could stick, stick around Washington yeah. state in politics or you can try and, 
uh, expand. But, you know, I, I, I didn't really have that much to say to kind of bask in this. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, um, and like I said, it was a show that cured me of my 20s cynicism. Yeah. Not because of the show itself, because of the people I got to talk to. And right and left. And, you know, another experience, another dinner, I think it was actually on this same group lobbying uh, uh, Capitol Hill, uh, talking to a member of, I won't name his name, but he's a member of the Freedom Caucus and everything he, out of his mouth and everything he stands for, I, I despise. At the same time, he talked about the joy of sitting down with his daughters and watching every episode of The West Wing. You know, which I would think is this liberal fantasy. And it's like, no, oh my God. He, that's, that's, you know, this is a ex-Baptist preacher and that's what he wants to aspire. You know, he wants to be Josh and Bartlett and mm-hmm. they want to be CJ. And it's like, well, why not? You know, I mean, I met the real CJ, Dee Dee Myers. There's nothing, there's no reason <laughs> to be cynical about Dee Dee. You know, she's yeah. fantastic and yeah. doing the hardest job in the world. I, we had a, 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 a Ken Duberstein, the guy who got Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, the guy who was uh, uh, Reagan's last chief of staff. And Dee Dee said, yeah, you're going to think you're meeting the devil. You'll be eating out of his hand in half an hour. And it was true. <laughs> the guy was so winning, so charming, right. and so upfront about his own opinion about certain members of his own party and what the party had become after Reagan. And it's just, wow. So... Every they're all hooked on the same drug, which is making a difference. This you know, power yeah. to actually make a difference, and the the you know the the thing that's crept in you know in the Trump era and the alt right era when it seems like politics is being run by people who don't do politics, by people who sit in front of a camera and a microphone and yeah. get a crowd worked up. It's a grift. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's the grift. Uh, it's the sham. You know, it's, 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 you know, they're, you know, it goes back to Mark Twain. I mean, con men have been running, you know, are, are as American as you can get. And there's nothing more American than a con man president. I mean, all the great ones, yeah. you know, uh, uh, FDR was, you know, seen for what he was. I mean, he was a, he was right. a, you know, a traitor to his class and con. Uh, Johnson. I mean, that, that, but, uh, I, I, I do yeah. think that I do think that um, to sort of come back to the the idealism of the show, I, I, I guess I just don't subscribe to the to the idea that idealism is bad. It's 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 right. an ideal. It's a thing that we should be striving for. Right. We should be looking towards the horizon and trying you know, to push ourselves. Now, is the West Wing unrealistic, quote unquote? I don't really care if it's unrealistic, quite frankly, because it should be something to strive for. Yeah. Um, when you talk about these people that work at the actual West Wing watching this show and thinking, I, I want to try to emulate that, I don't mm-hmm. think that's necessarily a bad thing. Now, you know, the question becomes whether or not uh, people being unrealistic in politics is a, is, is, problematic for the greater scheme of of getting things done and actually moving the ball and we you know better than anybody how difficult it is to actually 
change things, actually yeah. pass bills, actually move things through this government. It's difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got to take big swings. You got to aim for the, you know, aim for the stars, right? I mean, yeah. otherwise, this idea of just sort of like aiming for the middle all the time just feels kind of pointless to me. I don't know. I, I, I think you should obviously be incredibly proud of this show, but I would also just say that I think that, um, its legacy is in what you're saying right now, yeah. that, that you have people in politics today of all stripes watching this show and taking something positive away from it. There's nothing bad about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I, and I, first, more than anything, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to sit here and talk with me about this. Um, but to be able to get a, a window into the, the process and, and how this show was made, a show that I've watched innumerable times. Um, it, it is, it is just, I'm, I'm, hell, I'm watching season two right now. So it's, it's just, okay. <laughs> uh, I, I love it to death. It makes me, uh, unreasonably happy. Um, and I, I hope that that's all you could ask for from, from, uh, from your viewers and, and, and our listeners. So I really that's do appreciate so you taking the time. Paul. So, and that's why I want to keep going. I, I so miss. <laughs> Um, the, the 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 agony and the ecstasy of that writers' room. Sure, um, sure. I I miss Aaron. I miss uh, uh, that cast. I just love uh, watching them to continue. Um, and I want to continue in some form or another. And sure, um, sure. I mean, my my only difficulty is, and for this, I really blame Trump. It's it's now seems impossible to sell any kind of political show or something dealing with politics though. I'm, I'm certain the circle will come around because uh, it will. When Aaron sold West, I mean, you know, the story that West wing kind of sat on the shelf for a year Mm -hmm. because all the smart money in television said political shows never work. Um, Plus you're in the middle of a scandal on the Monica Lewinsky thing was happening like right at the right as that's happening. You know, I, I, I think that first of all, I I agree with you a hundred percent. I think a political show is definitely in our future. I think that there, uh, there is a hunger for, positivity in politics, a hunger for, for real, you know, systemic change. Um, I think that this anger and this, this wound that Trump sort of tore the scab off of and, and exposed to us is uh, ultimately hopefully a good thing. We have to acknowledge these, this wound. We have to acknowledge these problems. We have to work towards making them better. We can't just turn a blind eye to stuff. Um, we have to listen to everybody on the political spectrum. Um, it, it, it needs to be a country that, that is an entire political spectrum, not flanks of the far left and the far right. Um, and, uh, and I think that someone will find a way into that political drama, perhaps even yourself that, uh, that will sort of, you know, yeah. uh, bring it all together and, and do it all over again. Cause, um, I think there's a, there's a, there's an appetite for it. I mean, there's an appetite for, for a West wing revival if someone decided to do such a thing. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, that. Aaron keeps but, talking about it, but we'll see. I would, I mean, I, I, I hope he does it. I hope. I think you're it. right because to me, cynicism is, is a way of flattering the powerless. Yes. You know, telling it you're powerless for a reason. Yeah. You're going to yeah. stay powerless, but it's it's not worth it because the ones in power are shits. I think the the, the much more and the message of Trump is trying to you know uh, no the powerless want to be empowered. Yeah. <laughs> and if yeah. you can have a show that says no, it's your you may feel powerless now, but we actually you know mm-hmm. don't don't give up. You know climate change can be addressed. Systemic racism. It's not just exposing them. Uh, it's 
well, what are you going to do about it? And you can do something about it. Well, I, I would also, yeah. uh, I would, I would say yeah. that um, I would love to see a political drama uh, that is about smaller government. And by that, I mean, uh, um, uh, people that work in Congress uh, yeah. or a, a show about a Senator, a, a show about, the the day to day because the reality is that the politicians that are closest to the American people are the ones that are quote unquote the less interesting ones right yeah, or, yeah. or what they believe to be because the president is cool and all the various things yeah, that come with yeah. that mm-hmm. but I I just think that really getting into the nuts and bolts of being a congressman or, or or you know or a mayor or whatever something along those lines I mean I think Parks and Rec is one of my favorite shows ever and yeah, one of the reasons that I love that show yeah. is because it's just about a Parks and Rec department it's about building and just a like, hole it's like yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So that, I would love to see local. someone write, run with that. Yeah. yeah, all politics is local, exactly. Yeah. But but honestly, Paul, thank you so so much for being here and for for talking with me and and um, and answering questions that I've honestly had no joke for probably twenty years. Well, <laughs> so I really do appreciate it. Whenever you want. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate. Thank it. Thank you. One last thing, please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's 1999. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's 1999. Uh, thank you so much to Ernie and Will for producing our episodes, Sullivan for our social media, Jan Katas for our amazing art and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Podcast like it's 1999.